Sahil Lavengia, welcome to the Anti-Hackers Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are the founder of Gumroad. You wrote a mega viral blog post earlier this year called Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company. So once upon a time, you moved to San Francisco, you were employee number two at Pinterest, you started your own company, Gumroad, and you raised millions of dollars from investors, even tweeted about how this is going to be a billion dollar company. Uh, (laughs) Fast forward a few years, you took a much more anti-hacker approach. You moved to Provo, Utah, you bought out most of your investors, and you just kind of focused on generating revenue, not trying to get to some billion dollar valuation anymore. And what's cool about this is you're doing it all with the same company. You're one of very few founders, I think, to take the high-growth startup approach and the indie hacker approach with the same business. So let's talk about that for a bit. What are some of the differences between these two lifestyles as a founder, and what are some of the things that have stayed the same? Yeah, it's, it is sort of fascinating because most people, you know, to, when you, especially when you raise venture, one of the things that happens is you, you're stuck, right? You're sort of with those people for the rest of the journey of the company. People always joke that it's like harder to fire your co-founder, your investors than it is to get a divorce. And so, yeah, it's kind of this strange thing that happened to no credit of my own that I was able to sort of buy back most of the investors and sort of like basically start from scratch. I think in terms of the differences, I would say the number one difference is that I do not prioritize it above everything else. So, you know, when I raised money for Gumroad, when we started growing the team and all of that stuff, like Gumroad was the thing in my life, right? It was the most important thing. It was probably, sleep was probably number one. Gumroad was probably number two. Exercise number three, et cetera. You know, in my personal life and all of those things were sort of at the bottom. And even my personal life I sort of had architected it in a way that it was meant to further Gumroad, right? All of my friends, meetings, how I'd spend my time, even if I wasn't at the office, was all about, you know, sort of like, how do I sort of benefit Gumroad, you know? And I felt like I had a duty to do that. I'd raised a bunch of of, of venture capital, you know, I'd raised $8.1 million from, you know, sort of a list of Silicon Valley angels and VCs and, and, and things. And I also had built a team. And when you build a team, you have this sort of duty, but also this sort of like financial incentive to work super, super, super hard and stay super, super, super focused because every hour that you put in, you know, you have 20 people that are going to see that and mimic a little bit of that behavior. So I didn't do, I mean, in hindsight, sort of stupidly, I didn't do almost anything else in terms of like, I didn't angel invest in any friends, startups, you know, that would have been smart. John from Stripe was a good friend of mine back in the day. Not saying I would have been able to invest in it, but it just wasn't on my mind. I was sort of so one track. And now it's almost exactly the opposite where I am thinking about how can I build Gumroad in order to benefit my life? It's sort of very selfishly. And the weird thing with that is I didn't really, I wasn't really proud of doing that. You know, when I moved to Provo, I told my investors I'm doing this thing, but I wasn't like, sort of like shouting it from the rooftops or anything. Like, I'm going to go to Provo and like learn how to write and paint. You know, that's sort of a weird thing for someone who's raised 10 million bucks at this point to do. And I sort of kept it under the radar for a while. And then I wrote this post at the beginning of this year called, you know, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company because I just felt this dissonance, right? Where like I was having these private conversations, but I wasn't really reflecting that publicly. And the reception to it was like, yeah, you gave it a shot. It didn't work out, but you built this really great thing. And you're like, kind of like allowed to say that you did that, you know? And that really opened the door for me to be like, hey, it's totally fine 
to say, look, like I care about my, my livelihood. We call them lifestyle businesses, right? So I'm okay. It's okay to, to, uh, prioritize my lifestyle. And I've been upfront with, uh, with my, with the investors that have remained on board through this whole process with new employees, some of the same people that actually used to work for us back in the day. And it's surprisingly fine <laughs> to do that, to say, actually, Gumroad is my last priority of the day. I want to write, I want to paint, I want to go to the gym, I want to travel, I want to hang out with people, and I want to read. And if Gummer doesn't fit into that day, that's totally fine. It turns out, I think some of, one of the things that sort of gave me the freedom to do that was to look at this chart of the growth of Gumroad over the last eight years, which is like incredibly consistent. It's one of the most boring graphs you'll ever see. There's very little drama in it. And to sort of look at it and to sort of think about Wow, there, there were there were you know weeks and months in that process that you know we had a twenty person team we were working basically all the time all the waking time that we had and then there were times where we had no team it was just me answering support emails once a week you know working four hours a week and same sort of growth trajectory I think it gave me the freedom to say look like I'm just not that important to the operations of this company and and the success of this product and and the success of our creators and so. Let me give myself a little bit of permission to sort of experiment and do what I want to do. And it turns out that doing that actually has driven almost more empathy and more loyalty to what we're building and what we're doing this year and beyond than, than ever sort of has been in the past, which is kind of fascinating. How much of that do you think is due to you living this more relaxed, I don't want to say self-centered, but but focused on you lifestyle? And how much of it do you think is attributable to you just putting in more effort to actually share your story, to write blog posts, to tweet more often. Yeah, I think it's a whole host of things that all just come back to being myself and being open and transparent about what I want to do with my life and how Gumroad is a component of that. And, you know, inherently, I was the founder of this company. You know, I was the solo founder. It was my thing for a little bit. There is this inherent alignment that happens. And I think in in many ways, I was trying to force it. I was sort of to convince you know employees to join the company, you, you sort of have to drink your own Kool-Aid first before you can get anybody else to drink it. Otherwise, you're just lying, which is probably not wise. So I was just like, I think, drinking it so much that I was just like convinced that everything in the world was going to, to sort of get better because of Gumroad. And to say, look, like the world's going to do what the world's going to do, and I can have some amount of impact on it, but I'm not going to necessarily sort of slave over that. And I'm just going to build what I think is the right thing to build for the the group of creators that we already have, which is far easier than going out and acquiring customers and far cheaper. I think people people see that and they're like, oh, yeah. I think people sort of respect the ability to say, look, like I am not a product visionary. I'm not Steve Jobs. I'm not building cars. I'm just building a fast horse. And that's fine. That's what most people can do. Very few people can, you know, the car was invented by one person one time and that's about it. Yeah. I I think the other thing that's sort of unique about Gumroad is that we have so much in common with our creators. And so the more that we share about what we are actually doing, which is just building a great product as, you know, as much as we can, we're talking to customers. We're not raising money from VCs. We're not having fancy dinners with other founders anymore. That's what our creators do every day, right? And so I think when they see that, they're like, oh, cool, Gumroad's actually just like me. We're you know, both trying to build businesses. We're both building, uh, we're creating some form of software to do that. We're selling it to our audience. And so I think when, when we started becoming more open about the journey, we actually became much more accessible 
and much more relatable instead of this this Silicon Valley startup that had raised 10 million bucks and is trying to become this billion dollar company. Like most people are never trying to do that. And that's one of the things I sort of <laughs> sort of had to realize when I moved to Provo is I started talking about, you know, yeah, I'm writing this uh, thing. It's about my failure to build a billion dollar company. And it was just like, people would, would look at me funny. They're like, wait, what? Uh, first of all, like you were trying to build a billion dollar company. I thought you were just oil painting. <laughs> like, who are you? And then two, like, how is that a failure? Like, you're telling me you built like this multi-million dollar business that you own, you know, the vast majority of, and you can kind of do whatever you want. You're here oil painting with us, you know, Thursday at 2 p.m. How is that a failure, you know? And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about with that essay. And I think why it resounded so much was because even though I think intellectually people understand the, the sort of the absurdity of trying to go for building this massively successful company in a way that like, I felt like I could just do it, you know, like I tweeted, like, I'm going to build this thing. It's going to be a billion bucks. It's just sort of that, that it's like denialism of, of like other people's agency. Other people have to decide that you're worth a billion bucks. It doesn't just happen. Um, otherwise there would be a lot more of them in the world. Yeah. I think just so that, that like almost like peeling back some of the absurdity and sort of the surrealism of Silicon Valley sometimes, you know, it was almost like stating the obvious. And that's sort of what, what I think what a lot of people appreciated is that kind of, I had done this thing. I was in it. I was sort of the most inside of the in, sort of insider circle you could get. And then being like, yeah, it didn't work out and that's fine. You know, there are a lot of stories like this. I think, I think a lot of, I've talked to a lot of founders that have raised bunches of money that have gone through a similar journey, but people just don't talk about it. I think there's sort of a component of shame. I think there's a component of failure. I think there's a component of like my, my reputation is at stake here. And because I think I'd moved to Provo and because I just sort of was able to sort of physically get that distance, it just meant less. I was going to suffer less. If people were going to look at me and be like, wow, you made some really stupid decisions that prevented you from building a billion dollar company, you idiot. You know, I, I would be fine. Right. Whereas if I was still in San Francisco, it would have been a very different story. I think it would have been a lot more difficult for me to really have that thing go live and, and feel comfortable and safe. I've had a lot of conversations in San Francisco where people don't feel safe talking about failure. They'll tell you they're killing it even when they know they're not. Yeah. And in Provo, you tell people, oh, I failed to build a billion dollar company. <laughs> and they look at you funny and they say, you're still killing it. Like, I don't know why you're sad about that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because, you know, even in Silicon Valley, I mean, everyone talks about the failure rate, right? I don't think anyone is delusional about, you know, the percentage of startups that raise venture and fail. I mean, that's the majority of them right? I think 70% or something. But for some reason, it's when it when it starts to happen to you, you freak out and you're like, no, that's not possible. And I think that's, I think part of it is just, it's kind of like when you go, when you, you know, your top, this didn't really happen to me, but I've heard of it uh, described as when you're sort of top of the class in, in high school, right? You're just like the valedictorian. And then you go to Stanford and like everyone is is you. And all of a sudden you're like, no longer interesting. And you sort of have this existential crisis, like who am I? And I think it's similar, but maybe even more pronounced where you go to Silicon Valley and raising a million bucks is nothing. I mean, it, you're, it's meaningless there, you know? And so you go from the top of your field or top of your, your class or, you know, or, or all of these sorts of things. And then you start from the bottom again. And I think there is this sort of, because yeah, because you're seeing all of the all of your friends and, and, and all the people that you hang out with say, you know, raising bunches of money and uh, hiring a lot of people and, you know, at these crazy, you know, valuations and getting these crazy BD deals done. 
and everyone is sort of inflating their chest a little bit because you feel like you have to, right? Like if everyone is playing that game and you're not, you frankly just look like a failure out of the gate, which is, it's sort of self-fulfilling in that way, right? If you're an engineer and you're looking at all these hot, sexy companies, and then this one random one that is sort of like, hey guys, we're failing all the time. It's great. Uh, you're, you know, it's just not really going to work. I liken it a little bit to, um, to football helmets, where I think everyone kind of acknowledges that these things are not good for you, right? Like it doesn't really make you safer. It actually is more dangerous, but you're not going to be the one person on the football field saying, okay, cool. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take this off and I'm going to play like we <laughs> actually should play. Like you kind of need somehow everybody to, to kind of agree <laughs> on doing this at the same time, right? A little, it's like pr- prisoner's dilemma. And it creates this sort of, yeah, this like unsustainable, very unhealthy environment, I think. And I think everyone knows that it's broken, but I think very few people want to want to want to say it. I looked up some stats about Proville, Utah, and it is definitely not San Francisco, definitely not Silicon Valley. Uh, <laughs> population size is just over 100,000. It's 89% Mormon. The median household income is $32,000 a year, which would probably not get you a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco. So I imagine you stand out like a sore thumb there. What do you say to people who ask you what you do and how do they react? Yeah, I normally say I'm learning how to paint is sort of my default. Um, I'm learning how to paint and I write a little bit. Yeah, I basically, my, my girlfriend used, she now is comfortable with it. But in the beginning, she was like, everyone just thinks you're a bum, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone thinks that I'm just dating this weird, washed up, bearded, brown dude. You know, I'm 26, so I'm a little bit older than the average college kid, right? So it's like that kind of guy that never graduated and is like kind of still figuring out what he wants to do and is learning how to oil paint, probably doing shrooms on the weekends or something like that. I think the vibe that I was giving off, you know, from San Francisco, et cetera. I mean, Provo is the most conservative city in America, over 100,000 people. I, you know, no one here swears. And so it's, it's sort of very noticeable. But everyone's super nice, you know, and I think I think it's it's one one of the first things I noticed being here is how little people cared about what people did for a living. It was, you know, the questions were always oriented towards, you know, how are you? How's your family? Are you Mormon? You know, things things that sort of reflect their priority stack, which is was sort sort of so fundamentally different from mine, which was like, you know, I would ask, what do you do for work? Where do you work? You know, how not how much money you make specifically, but these sort of ways to almost gauge someone's value to the society uh, in this sort of very transactional way, which is kind of how everyone in San Francisco does it. You go to a house party and everyone's like, you know, what do you do? Where do you work? How, you know, which VC, how do you, have you raised any money? Have you, you know, from who? Your work um, is your much? identity NSF. It's who you are. It is. It is. Yeah. It, and, and it makes sense, right? I mean, you moved, I did move to San Francisco to work at Pinterest, right? Literally to work. And, and it's a very transactional city for a lot of people. And, and, um, and that's fine. It just is what it is. Um, I'm sure New York is similar in finance and LA might be similar in, in entertainment. And, but in Provo, it's, it's just like, we're on this earth to be of service to other people and to raise a family and to be faithful and test our faith. That's sort of the literal theology of it, right? And nowhere in there is how much money you make. Uh, nowhere in there is who do you work for and how many employees do you have. And frankly, I mean, a little bit is how educated you are, but not really in any way that reflects, you know, that is used to sort of make more money, but just to be more educated so you can serve others. And it really just got me thinking about how, you know, when you travel, 
people always say opens up your mind, right? And you, and you sort of see how different cultures solve the same problem. And the sort of one of the sort of fundamental problems, I think, is like, what is the meaning of life, right? And in San Francisco, you're so in it, you're so in, oh, the meaning of life is to like, you know, change the world, have as much of an impact as possible, typically through scalable means like building software and uh, building sort of hyper growth companies. It just is what it is. And you, you, you're, you sort of forget that you're, you're breathing that air. It's just everywhere, you know? And then when you move to Provo or when I moved to Provo, like over months, it was like, wow, there's a totally, like the, the way that they think, right? They're, when, when, the way that they view the world and their place in it and their place in the universe is just so fundamentally different than, than I was looking at it. And it took a while, you know, it traveling definitely has some of that, but it's very surface level. And, and when you live in a place, you know, I've lived in Provo now for two and a half years, which is way longer than I ever thought I would live in Provo, Utah. Uh, I thought I would last a year, but you realize sort of just how, even though the houses look the same and the streets look the same and the traffic lights look the same, but the sort of the fundamental, when people think about doing stuff, right? When people wake up in the morning and go to sleep at night and plan their days, et cetera, the very deep, deep, deep reasoning behind making some of those decisions is, is very fundamentally different than the ones that sort of feed into those decisions in San Francisco. And it's almost like meditating, right? When you meditate, you're sort of getting deeper and deeper into your own thoughts and really figuring out why you think the way you think. And living in a place like Provo is almost like an external version of meditating, where you're forced to reckon with all of the ways that, you th- that you've lived and, and the decisions that you've made. And you're just grappling with why you made them and realizing how relatively baseless those are and how mimetic they are, how based on other people's behavior they are, um, which in turn are based on other people's behaviors. You know, And so you kind of are like, who am I? <laughs> Like you, you, you use the word identity, which is like the sort of the word on the top of my mind right now, which is like, yeah, what is my identity? How do I define that? It's a weird thing to think about when you've spent eight years just being so sure of what your identity was. I was going to spend the rest of my life building software products, tweeting pithy things and, uh, you know, just becoming a a VC or what, you know, whatever the track was that I saw in front of me, right. Doing what Bill Gates did just in my own way. And now I'm like, I have no idea. There's not very many people that have done this sort of thing. I'm still trying to find find those people and, and, and learn from them. Let's say somebody does a little bit of digging into your business. How do you explain to somebody from Provo what Gumroad is? Yeah, I say, you know, I run a, a small software business called Gumroad. We help creators like musicians, writers, artists, filmmakers, soft, uh, software engineers, stand-up comedians, anyone that makes stuff on their computer, we make it really easy for them to take that stuff, upload it to the cloud and sell it directly to their audiences that might exist on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Instagram, in order for them to own the relationship they have with their customer, sort of transact directly, make the vast majority of the revenue and build a, you know, earn a living doing what they really love to do um, instead of maybe doing uh, something else to pay the bills and then, you know, making music nights and weekends. Let's do a version two. Imagine you were talking to a founder or an investor or somebody in San Francisco how would you explain Gumroad to them? Yeah, I basically say, you know, we're Shopify uh, for digital goods. Um, we started out being a Bitly plus a credit card form. We wanted to democratize the ability to sell uh, just, you know, just like you can share basically anything. And, the, and, and, and more and more people are sort of sharing directly with their audience instead of having to go through a middleman 
like Amazon or iTunes or their label or their publisher. Um, we want to sort of democratize the ability to sell anything you can share. And if we can do that, then all of these artists, creators, influencers, celebrities, et cetera, should be able to make a living on their own terms instead of one dictated by all of these different middlemen. And when you get rid of middlemen, in general, that means a more efficient, cheaper, just better economy that sort of is serving the consumer and the creator instead of all these other people that are sort of in the middle, which is kind of actually, <laughs> I've never done that before, but it's profound how different of a pitch that was it and is. how many, you know, it's, it's, that's a cool thing. I mean, it, it shows how much context is baked in a Silicon Valley, right? Like middleman, democratization, all of these terms. If you said that to, um, you know, one of the retired moms that I paint with, she would look at me funny. She'd <laughs> think that I just had like an acid flashback or something. It's also very mission focused. When you're describing Gumroad to a tech audience, you talked about how it was going to change the world, right? How it was going to affect the market, how it was going to make the experience of being a creator different. Yeah. One of the things I, I have sort of mirrored a little bit is in San Francisco, you're, yeah, the, the way that people talk is, is similar in, in, or in the way that they both want to sort of serve people, right? I think that's sort of, we agree on that. We both want to serve the world. We're servants to humanity, et cetera. But in San Francisco, it's all about this crazy long-term, mega large humanity sort of, you know, what does Steve Jobs say? Dent, denting the universe, right? And in Provo, it's just like, I just want to help people. You know, I want to help my, uh, my neighbor and my community, my government, uh, my family. And if I do that and everyone else does that, we're going to be in a, in a really good spot. And so, yeah, it's just, it's just the, 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 the context and the scale is just so, so profoundly different, um, in the way that these, these sort of groups of people think about, yeah, their approach to, to actually being in service of others. Tell us about how you first moved to the Bay area and got involved in tech. So I moved to San Francisco um, to work at Pinterest. This was um, late 2010, early 2011. I was a college student at USC in LA, and I got an email. I posted some stuff on Hacker News, and I started commenting. That was my sort of way of trying to get into the tech community and build up my audience at the time. And Ben, the CEO of Pinterest, sent me an email out of the blue. He saw one of the apps I'd made on, on the top of Hacker News and it was, you know, basically like, hey, we we have this thing that we've been building called Pinterest. We help people collect, organize, and share the things that they love. And uh, we need an iPhone app, and we don't have one. And it looks like you're a pretty competent uh, sort of developer and designer of apps. Uh, do you want to help? And so I quoted them four thousand dollars initially for Pinterest for iPhone. Uh, yeah, I, I ended up having to double that because it was way more work than I thought, which is always the case. And then I ended up being like, hey guys, I've started getting uh, some full-time offers from other startups. Would you consider making me an offer? I'd love to work for you full-time and, and sort of take a leave of absence from, from USC and, and, and move up to uh, the Bay Area. And Ben was like, yeah, we'd love to talk about that. Like, let us know when you're in San Francisco. I was like, I'm not going to be in San You know, like I don't have plans. Normally San Francisco startups fly you up for the day. But they were just, I mean, it was just so, I think, indicative of how they thought about just, they were so frugal, you know, and they were just so like, yeah, if you're, if you're interested, like, let, you know, like, let, like drive up here yourself and, and uh, come talk to us. And I was like, okay. So I, uh, eventually I, uh, a couple of friends of mine were, were driving up to the Bay Area to, to watch a USC Cal game. And I was like, yeah, I'll come up and then I'll just bounce for a few hours on Sunday and hang out with these two, these two Silicon Valley founders and, and talk to them about this app that we're building together. and. uh 
And so I did. And my friends thought I was really weird. And then I told them I was going to drop out of school to join the startup called Pinterest, be employee number two. And everyone was like, okay, I guess. Um, you know, everyone, you know, you know, you know, Mark Zuckerberg had done this thing and Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. And you know, these stories of these, of these things, but to actually do it was, was weird and also surprisingly uncommon. I had sort of expected it to be like, oh yeah, this thing that happens in the news happens all the time to everybody, right? Everyone knows someone. And then I dropped out and I was the only person from my high school that did that. You know, um, I was the only person basically in San Francisco and now it's a little bit different. Software has, has sort of developed and matured for better or worse. And uh, the social network came out. I always considered the social network like one of the pivotal moments of Silicon Valley culture and history. But yeah, that's sort of what got me up to up to the Bay Area initially was to work at Pinterest, employee number two, building uh, and designing Pinterest for iPhone. What did you hope was going to happen as a result of you making this decision? Like, What was the best case scenario in your mind? Yeah, so the way that I thought about it was... I wanted to get a software engineering degree. It would take four years. Then I'd work at Google and then I'd work at a small company and then I'd, you know, start my own thing. And, you know, when I was 35 or something like that, that was the track I think that I imagined for myself at the time. And the way that I justified leaving school to join Pinterest was, well, if I want to do that, right, if I think startups are genuinely like a a thing that I want to do, I should probably figure out now if that's a possibility for me, if I'm going to be good at it, if I'm even going to like it. Otherwise, I'm going to spend 15 years and then realize I'm not made for that, which I don't know if it was like a way of just deluding myself to, to make the jump and I was already convinced or, or, or not. But I, that's sort of how I justified both joining Pinterest, leaving USC, and then also leaving Pinterest to start a company, which was I want to maybe start a company. I don't know if I'm going to be capable of doing this thing, so I might as well try now. And then you know, if it's, if, if it's not the thing for me, I'll go back to to school and, and, and figure things out or, or what have you. That was sort of, it was like, I was like, there is this potential job and career path, which is you basically get to make software, which is something I was already doing and I could get paid for and I could do it on my own terms. And that sounded amazing. And then basically VCs would pay for me to do that, you know? And if those things are true, like, how can I not try this thing? It just feels too perfect and too good. And so that's, yeah, that's sort of for better or worse what I ended up doing and led to starting Gumroad. It's kind of funny because you inadvertently and unbeknownst to you at the time, won the lottery by being employee number two at Pinterest. (laughs) Uh, There's a ton of Silicon Valley companies you could have gone to work for. The vast majority of them did not become billion dollar companies that made all of their early employees rich. But Pinterest did. Mm -hmm. Totally. And it was incredibly stupid of me to leave with a few months left on my cliff. It was a multi-million dollar decision to do that. But it kind of, I think if I, the, I think the truth is if I, if I was smart enough to stick around at Pinterest, I would have been smart enough never to have joined, you know, yeah. like it required a certain amount of ambition and ego and ignorance, I think, to join Pinterest. But then that was the same cocktail of, of things that was going to get me to leave Pinterest and leave all that money on the table. And I think in hindsight, I think gave me this immense chip on my shoulder. Where when I left, I, I kind of knew that they were on onto something. They were growing super fast. And, you know, we just raised a Series A and it was like the largest Series A of the year. And it was like, this has a good shot at being really big. Therefore, Gumroad has to be significant because otherwise I'm going to look like a fool, <laughs> which I think happened on a, anyways a little bit. 
but uh, I'm still on the journey. So, you know, maybe, maybe one day, but I, you know, I would be remiss, I think to say that, like, I don't think about, you know, what could have been right. If I had stayed at Pinterest and who knows where I would be now. Ironically, April Fool's Day, 2011, you infamously tweeted, just had an idea for my first billion dollar company. Tomorrow I start building it. What was going on with you energetically when you sent that tweet? I imagine you must have felt amazing to be so confident about this idea. Yeah, I think I was home on a Friday night and I had just learned, I was just learning a photorealistic icon design and I had made this a pencil icon and I wanted to see if I could sell it to anybody that followed me on Twitter or on Dribble or something like that. Um, I had a sort of a mo- modest audience at the time, but I didn't want to invest in, you know, building a storefront and like a whole website or, you know, give it, put it on some marketplace somewhere and then take, you know, get a tiny percentage in 60 days or something like that. So I basically, what I, what I called it at the time was the lemonade stand. I just want a lemonade stand. I don't want to, I don't want to like invest in like a retail experience or anything like that. And then it just wasn't possible. There was surprisingly difficult, just kind of this weird sort of gap between selling something and sharing something. And the minute you attach a price tag to something, it just became basically impossible for me to do it myself. And I just thought that was super weird. And I remember going into this sort of the opposite of a death spiral, whatever you call that, in terms of just like having all of these like revelations about, oh my gosh, like musicians could sell all their stuff that doesn't make the album and all, you know, all these designers could sell all these wireframes and mocks and, and you could see all this behind the scenes footage. And like basically what happens when you allow all of this stuff to get monetized, when you drop the minimum requirement for what is a sellable thing, what can you charge money for? Could you unlock this entirely new economy that would power, you know, all of this creative output? And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I was just so convinced in this <laughs> that I thought I would tweet about it. And so I did. I said, yeah, tomorrow I, I start building my first billion dollar company, which I think is hilarious because I said first, you know, it wasn't <laughs> like a billion dollar company. It was like, yeah, one of seven. I don't know what I was on at the time. I'm sure I was is sort of euphoric probably, you know? And then I built, yeah, I built Gummer that weekend and it, it launched Monday morning. It was on the top of Hacker News, like 50,000 people saw it. And I was just like, it was just like the most, it was probably the worst thing that could have happened in that because it totally just fed into that. You know, it was like, if this is going to be a billion dollar company, this is how that starts, you know, and I said it wasn't, but uh, it definitely sort of get that confirmation bias was, was very, very strong at the time. We talked about that movie, The Social Network, and how that was sort of a, a turning point in Silicon Valley, where so many people who weren't really aware of what was going on got suddenly interested and wanted to come out here and sort of write the story of their life as this billionaire tech founder. And that seems to be kind of like the wave that you were writing, too. How old were you when, when this happened, when you launched Gumroad and it blew up over the course of a weekend? I think I was 18 at the time. So I, had, I was, yeah, I was super young. And it was honestly... I think that was a big component because, you know, if you imagine like a, uh, this happens to, uh, prodigies in, 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 in piano and in different skills where they have this trajectory because their, their sort of professional development has taken, you know, place over a very, very few years. The sort of the rate of growth looks like a rocket ship, right? But in a lot of these cases, it's sort of asymptotic, right? So it goes from zero to 90 in, in three years, but then it goes from like 90, to 91 in another three years and slows down. Whereas most people have a more linear growth. It basically tricks people because what people do inherently is they extrapolate, right? So I was like 18 at this time. I just raised, 
when I was 19, maybe at the time that I had raised money, I was, you know, I had raised 8 million bucks. I was 19. I was on the front page of all these different things. And, and it was just like, you can't help, I think, project that line sort of breaking through the chart and going into the stars or whatever. And, and then, yeah, totally. And at the same time, Silicon Valley was getting on the radar as a whole in pop culture because of movies like the social network. And I think that was such a critically important movie and time and, and moment because it really sort of mainstreamified, mainstreamified Silicon Valley, right? This was 2010 when, you know, people talk about Instagram being this massive thing. But at that point, like Instagram, I think had not even sold to Facebook for a billion bucks. It was, you know, which is now, if you think about Instagram being worth a billion dollars, it would be laughed out of the room. But, you know, back then, no one really used Instagram. It was still like a relatively niche thing that for like photographers now it's just used by influencers and everyone to just post their, their life. But I think it really, it, what it did was it matured the industry, I think really fast where all of a sudden it went from a bunch of people building stuff and there's sort of their motivations definitely were money related, but, but you know, we're, we're mostly there to build things and, and truly I think change the world. And it turned into, I think something like wall street, which is, this is a great business opportunity. There's a massive amount of inefficiency in the world. Software is this new thing that's going to fix a lot of that. We're going to be able to capture a bunch of value by doing that. So inherently it attracts people that are there to make money and to, and to have a career, which is totally fine and sort of necessary. I think every industry sort of goes through that. But I think it happened so fast that it felt overnight that like one day it was just a bunch of people building stuff. And then all of a sudden it was like all of these people wanting to sell stuff and wanting to grow stuff and wanting to growth hack and all of these sorts of things. And it just changed, I think, the vibe of, of the industry. I, and I think, honestly, for the better, I think we, I think it's easy to sort of say, oh, all these like finance bros came in. But at the end of the day, like, I think it just, it, it provides a mirror to what we were doing, which is at the end of the day, tech is a great job. You get to build a lot of really cool stuff and you make a lot of money. And so I think it's sort of okay to say, look, like we are motivated by several things and not all of those things is just sort of like hippie building stuff, you know, on the peak of a mountain uh, because <laughs> we love the process of building software. At the end of the day, that's just not true. And it's, it's uh, I think, healthy to be like, look, at the end of the day, Wall Street and the tech industry are not profoundly different. They are honestly almost identical. And that's fine because most things are pretty similar and everyone's sort of have similar incentives and, and things like that. There's not something sort of profoundly unique about software. It's just money with logic built into it or something like that. What was this process like of you building this app over a weekend? Because I think most people, if they run into this roadblock, oh, I really want to sell this thing I made online, I can't. The conclusion would be that it's too difficult to do it. And if no one else has done it, certainly you can't do it. So move on to something else. What gave you the confidence that you could make this website, this product that would actually help people sell stuff online? And how did you build it in just a weekend? I think it was a combination of things. The, the first one was because I can design and code. And so that was always, I think, a strength of mine. I think it's what led me getting the job at Pinterest was they could basically give this kid a really loose spec and then I could come back with a full app. You know, I didn't have to necessarily work with anybody else too deeply to, to get to a sort of an MVP. And it was similar, I think, with 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 Gumroad, where it's like, okay, I I'm not that competent of an engineer, uh, certainly, but I can make a CRUD app, which is basically what most apps are, right? <laughs> you create products, you upload files, you edit the name and the price, 
you can delete them uh, and then you, you can tweet them out and then people can buy them. And I think the other thing that happened was I always try to ask myself, like, why hasn't this been built yet? Like what prevented the past from making this thing? And I think with Gumroad, it was this idea that, you know, people were still building up these audiences on their own on thing, on social media. And it was a relatively new thing. And so, you know, if you didn't have an audience on social media, there was no point in selling directly, right? You were going to sell through all of these traditional means because that's how people interacted with their, with their audience and with their potential customers anyways, right? Through iTunes and, and things like that. So that was, that was part one was the sort of that component of, of the system was, was still owned, I think, primarily by these traditional uh, middlemen. And then the other one was Stripe. It was so difficult to accept payments. And Stripe just totally changed the game on that. Certainly, it went from a two to three week process to, you know, a weekend process or, or a 30 minute process. And I was sort of lucky. I think I knew John. I'd met him a few months, I think, before that. And I was like, hey, John, uh, could, could, uh, could I have a Stripe beta key? And uh, he was like, yeah, sure. Um, and so I think, I don't know what, what, I wish I could find out. Maybe you can find out for me what, what, uh, what user ID Gumroad has in Stripe. But I think we're pretty early. You know, this is uh, April 2011. And so that, I think, made the whole thing super easy. It was really, I think, not only a proof of concept for Gumroad, I think, but a proof of concept for Stripe. Like, this is the sort of thing that's now possible because of something like Stripe. I think if I had used PayPal, which I think was the original idea, I would have probably spent two to three weeks on it and then no longer sexy, right? Like the whole, I think a huge amount of the appeal of something like Stripe is democratizing the ability to sort of just like accept credit card payments and and what happens when you do that. And so, so yeah, it was just, I think just like this, I was just so obsessed with the idea and I had this fixation with already with, with building things in a weekend. I was always, you know, one, I had a full-time job. And so I was burnt out at the end of the day. It was going to be hard for me to do that Monday through Friday. But two, I just, I really felt like there were all these ideas and sometimes people get caught up in the name or the, the branding or the logo or the, you know, the design and the FAQ pages and all that sort of stuff and making it perfect. And I was like, I was always like, no, I just need to build stuff. Like I'm going to learn, my goal is to learn, not necessarily to, uh, build successful products at this point, because I'm going to do that in 10 years, right? That was still sort of my plan was in five to 10 years, I was going to go try that. And so my goal was just to like, be prolific and ship as many different item ideas as possible. Because my goal, my the product that I was really building was like my own brain, right? It was my own ability to, to build products that was more exciting to me uh, than anything else. It was like what I had to do. I was like, I need to launch this Monday morning. I think maybe that was part of why I tweeted it. I think in hindsight, I think there are a couple sort of deep reasons. One was that was just, I, if I told the world, then I'd have to do it, right? It'd be really awkward <laughs> if I tweeted this thing. And then, you know, six months later, everyone's like, hey, what happened to that thing that you said you were going to build? And then I think the other one is just, I wanted to put a stake in the ground. I was so, I, I don't know if I was confident that it was going to be a billion dollar company, but it was, there was a high enough chance that I wanted to like, I sort of, I think I imagine like the times cover, you know, the time cover, like this tweet, the stupid kid in the middle of nowhere in his life tweeted this thing. And then it actually became a billion dollar company. Like what the hell? That's crazy. And so I think part of it was that too, was like just thinking about the sort of the 10 years I could look back and, and it would serve as almost like a time capsule of, of sort of my thinking at the time. This is why I brought up the social network again, because 
It's the story of Mark Zuckerberg striking it rich. But everybody in SF and Silicon Valley really has its own kind of story about themselves, picturing themselves on the front cover of a magazine, picturing the biography that will be written about them. And I think that's also why it's so shocking to people when their company ends up, you know, one of the 70% that don't make it because it's contrary to totally. the story that they've, they've sort of written about themselves. Yeah. And you need that story to a degree, right? At the end of the day, like it's not easy. It is relatively low probability. And the truth, I think, is you need to have almost a, some amount of delusion because five years in, it's, I mean, it's not nearly as fun or as sexy as the social network makes it out to be. Uh, you're sort of constantly in like a fight or flight response with something or the other. You're building a team. There's, it's really high stakes. It's a lot of stress. And there are a lot of reasons to say, okay, never mind. But I think when you, when you, you know, if you're a basketball player, like having the poster of LeBron on your wall, like that's super motivating, you know, even though you might not make it. And I think it, you kind of just have to, you just have to believe that you're going to be the exceptional case. And I think what happens is you go so long believing that and seeing all of these signs that sort of are like, oh, we raised a series A in like six months. We raised 8 million bucks. We hired this amazing person. There are all these, you know, I'm meeting with this, you know, with the CEO of American Express or whatever, whatever is happening. And there are all of these signs that are like, oh, that's the story, right? Like those are like, if you watch a TV show, like that's the character arc that happens. Like, yeah, these are the scenes in your movie. Yeah. And that exactly. And then you get, you feel like you're getting closer and closer and closer. And then all of a sudden you just like the, you know, you just hit a wall. And at that point you've, you've sort of gone so deep into the movie. You're sort of just so unaware and so unpresent in your sort of in your experience that, that it's a shock. It becomes a shock, even though intellectually, I think everyone's like, yeah, this is a thing. It's a lottery, uh, timing, market, lock, privilege, all of these things really matter. But all of a sudden, when you're when you start to see these signs of success, you don't really realize that a lot of other people are seeing these same signs of success, and very few of you are going to make it. There's actually a story that a high school teacher told me one time about a scam that happened in America, and what they did was they would mail out, let's say, ten thousand uh, mails saying, you know, if you invest in the stock, you're going to make you're going to make money, and and then every every week they'd pick a different stock and they'd say, if you invest in this stock, you're going to make money, right? And there are all these people that got to the end of, you know, like, let's say a 12 week process. And literally every single time this male was telling them the stock that was going to make them a bunch of money. And then on the 13th week, they get this, this male that's like, Hey, you know, we told you all of these things. It's amazing. Like send, you know, invest in this new thing, $50,000, whatever it is, however much money you have. And, and all these people are like, yeah, that, I mean, obviously this person literally predicted the future 12 times in a row. I'm going to give them a bunch of money. But what happens is they actually mail thousands and thousands of people that, and they pick all these different companies. And then the second week, they only mail the people that they were right so on. So smart. And third week, fourth week, fifth week, et cetera. And so it's a numbers game. And so you have all these people that are like, they think they're the chosen one in a sense, <laughs> but actually... <laughs> There are all of these people that got really close to Mount Doom and died along the way that you just never heard about. Turns out there's actually millions of hobbits or whatever, you know? And um, <laughs> you just, what happens is, is you figure out which one worked and then great, you have all the footage of all these other ones. You throw all that away and you just tell the story of this one. And you just can't help but think, oh, like I am 
on the track. I am. I've been right all of these different times. It's like, you know, you ever watch like a, you know, how to be a millionaire or whatever that game is called, you know, and it's the same sort of idea, right? Like you, you're like on the, on the, on the story and you, you just can't imagine not being the one to win a million dollars because you're getting all of this confirmation bias all the time. And then you lose it and you can see the, their faces are just like in shock. Yeah. Like they're like, they couldn't even, even though the chance, the true sort of, if you look at the statistics, probably like, I don't know, half a percent or something get from, you know, the lap, the penultimate question to the ultimate question and, and end up winning the money. It's a sort of a fascinating, I'm sure they, they're mindful of that, right? Like they build the game and the story that they're telling within the episode so that people believe that they're the chosen one. They do that and then they ultimately lose. Otherwise it would be very unprofitable for, uh, for the, for the producers of the show. I've got a ton of stuff I want to say in response to that. First, uh, a note to the audience. If you guys want to look at what Gumroad looked like back in 2011 when Sahel first launched it, just Google Wayback Machine and put in gumroad.com. Click back to April 2011 and you can see the homepage as he originally launched it, which was super simple. Uh, I think that's why you were able to keep it to just like a weekend project. If you weren't trying to be super ambitious, you didn't have like a ton of different pages on it. I think people can learn a lot that you can get somewhere ambitious over time. If you start small, you don't need to start super huge. But back to what you're talking about, this process where you, you sort of have, you know, win after win, success after success, but in a lot of ways that's completely indistinguishable from getting lucky over and over again. It's pretty brutal. You've actually tweeted that the best co-founder is luck. What do you think are some of the luckiest things that happened to you early on in Gumroad's history? And what do you think are some of the things that were very deliberate, considered decisions that led to success? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, some of the most profound moments in my, you know, in my career. And these are, you know, these are things that other founders and VCs have have looked at and been jealous. I mean, they told me after I wrote that article on failure, they were like, wow, I, I kind of have to apologize because I thought you were, you were a dick because you were having all the success for doing absolutely nothing. But I was, I was really thinking about, you know, like when I got the job at Pinterest, that had nothing to do with me, right? Like what if Ben had emailed somebody else? Who knows, right? What if that post of my app on Hacker News didn't make it to the top? What if he checked it 15 minutes later, right? Like there are all these sort of things that went into that happening for me. Um, when I, you know, one of the things that got me really interested in Gumroad and really being like, wait, this can be a company, like I can raise money for this, was investors, you know, this one investor, Craig from Collaborative Fund, he emailed me after he saw that on Hacker News, Hacker News has played a pretty phenomenal part of my life. And he just said, hey, like, I know you're fully employed. I know you're at Pinterest. If you ever decide to leave Pinterest and start this thing as a company, like, I'll send you at least 10000 bucks." And I was like, hey, I don't know if I'm ever going to do that. But if you want to send me $10,000, like, <laughs> here's a bank account, uh, you know, and like, let me know. And he did. He literally sent me, you know, we, I mean, we, you know, had some back and forth and agreed on some terms. But he he sent he sent me ten thousand bucks and I just it just sat there in in some Bank of America account or something I had made you know for 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 a holding company and uh, you know it was just like this insane amount of validation uh, that I had that had nothing to do with me it was just other people constantly being like hey you know we think you have potential you know here's some validation here's a, a contract uh, here's you know some money etc and I think that played a really sort of profound role in my confidence levels at the time and really sort of was like, wow, I am, I can do this. Like, I, this is something I can do. I, you know, had, I had always just read these stories and I had ma imagined like Bill Gates, like as some crazy profound 
CEO founder working on a supercomputer, you know, like parked up against a wall or something like who knows, like I never related to them. I'm not nerdy enough. And that really was like, no, you can do this. Like you are one of these people. And so I think that was really important. But I think the, the thing that I was good at, and I think one of the things I will take credit for is I was always very open and very transparent. And so, you know, I wasn't just building stuff, you know, in my dorm room, I was posting on Hacker News. I wasn't just posting on Hacker News. I'd write a blog post about building the thing. And then I'd share that on Hacker News and I tweet about it. And I, I think I was always really good at putting myself out there and putting my work out there and building up a reputation and a brand. And even when I raised the seed round, it wasn't just this random person raising money. It was this person who had worked at Pinterest, who had this blog that had gone back for a few years. You know, people could see that and be like, okay, this is a reputable person. He really does care about building stuff. He didn't just watch the social network and then move to San Francisco and is trying to raise money and, and, and build the next Facebook, right? Which I think is a lot of the, the stuff that they, they probably deal with, I think, on a, on, a, on a day-to-day basis. I've always been really open about meeting people. I was spending every weekend, that, you know, when I was in, in, in uh, Palo Alto, meeting with different founders and different people from Hacker News. You know, some of those founders have gone on to, to create uh, billion-dollar companies. John from Stripe is one of them. He reached out to me, I think, back in the day. You know, we were both like 18 or 19-year-old kids at the time. Brian Armstrong from Coinbase uh, reached out to me and asked me if I would consider working with him on some Bitcoin-related project. And I said, that's weird. I don't really <laughs> think Bitcoin's going to work. <laughs> uh, and then he made uh, Coinbase. And then, oh, uh, I didn't even know that. I totally forgot about this. But apparently the, the founders of Plaid, which is also, I think, a unicorn at this point, or close, I hung out with them recently. We had a former employee go to them to lead their design. And he's like, we actually met <laughs> a long time ago and you were giving us some advice on some stuff. And I was like, wow, that is insane. But I think it's important. I think, you know, the best co-founder is luck, but I think, you know, you can definitely work on your luck, right? And luck, I, I think broadly means all sorts of stuff, but mostly what it means is the, the stuff out of your control, but you can still kind of, you know, you can, you know, like Ben sending me that email was out of my control. I couldn't force him to do that. But what I could do is, is post my app on Hacker News, email a bunch of blogs that wrote about app design and, and try to get them to write about it, uh, email TechCrunch every time I built something, tweet about all this stuff, have a Twitter account that people could follow, you know, put my email in my Hacker News profile that people could so people could reach out and we could grab coffee and start building up these relationships. And even uh, I wrote this post, uh, you know, reflecting on my failure to build a billion dollar company at the, at the beginning of this year, and, you know, it did really well. And I think it probably would have done well anyways. But I think a lot of it, I, I got probably over 100 people that were like, hey, I met you at Cyclass Coffee in 2013. And I just want to say I had no idea you were going through this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there are a lot of these responses. And I think that probably led to a large amount of the success of the article because it wasn't just like, oh, this random founder went through this. It was this person that people had met potentially and you know that if you go to that Twitter post and you'll see the replies of it, there's like two to three hundred replies of all these people that are all Silicon Valley somebodies now that were like, "Hey, we met up or this, or, it's so cool to hear your journey, and I'm glad you're doing well." And it gives a so I think a depth to the article that goes deeper than just like, "Oh, this story that you read on on Medium and it's really cool or whatever." And I think that's really important because at the end of the day, if you want to raise money, often the first round of funding is called the friends and family round, right? And that sort of implies 
that has nothing to do with what you built. That implies that you've built a, a network of people that trust you, that believe in you, and that want you to succeed and are sort of willing to, to help you do that. And, and a lot of people don't have friends and family with money. And, and that's uh, super notable and, and, and important to talk about. But I think at the end of the day, I spent a long period of time building that network and building that level of trust. And so when I decided, hey, I'm going to go start this company, I had that already going for me, right? Like when I tweeted that Medium article, I think I got something like 150 retweets in the first five minutes. There's no way anyone read that article that fast, right? But I think it was like, hey, this person that I, you know, has helped me out, you know, somewhere in the last eight years, I did the math and I think I probably had coffee meetings with probably around 7,000 people wow. um, in that time. It's like, you know, hey, like he, that, he, did, he helped me out that one time, I'll help him out this one time, right? And that boosts Crazy. the post and Twitter looks at that and is like, Hey, like this, clearly this post is uh, jiving with people. Like let's, uh, let's, you know, the algorithm will, will go put that somewhere else, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think that those things add up over time. You can't control when they're going to help. Um, I think, um, Naval has some saying about that where it's basically like, you know, you should, you should help people and, and, and it will come back to you. But if you're counting it, if you're waiting for it, you're, you're going to get pissed off. You're going to, it's, it, it's going to take a lot longer than you think, but a lot of these things will come back and help you out. Um, you know, if I was bitter about Pinterest, that could have burned some bridges that would have led to me not being able to raise money at all. Right. Um, I, I think I've always tried to be really, really positive about my relationships. And even, you know, even, even today, I think it's, it's important to continue to build those relationships with, with people I've never met. And one of the things that I, I really believe now that's a relatively new realization for me is that friends take time to build. You don't become friends with someone overnight. I always used to be upset and I've talked about it before that, you know, San Francisco is a transactional place, right? And like when I went through um, the layoffs and everything, I felt like my network had sort of evaporated. But the truth, I think in large part is that these networks, like they weren't friends because we hadn't known each other long enough, right? And I think friends become friends over time. Adults complain about, you know, it's always really hard to move to a new city and make friends, but I think part of it is, well, you know, it takes, you know, it takes years. Like, you know, imagine, you know, think about who you're friends with. Who would you crash on a couch with when you're uh, visiting a city, right? It's probably the people that you've known the longest that have seen you drunk and through some really hard times. It's not just the people that knew you when you were the founder of a, you know, a venture back startup. And I think that's been important for me to realize too. And something I'm actually trying to do now when I go to San Francisco is not to status seek and not to just hang out with oh, I have 50,000 followers on Twitter and there are all these new cool people that I, I get to hang out with or whatever. But really like, okay, who did I meet over the last eight years that I really just liked, that I just think I really just want to be friends with this with these people. I don't care how many Twitter followers they have or what they're doing, but I just like them. And I, I, I want, you know, I want them to succeed and I want to help them succeed. And I just want to spend time with them and, and really sort of build out those, those, those relationships. You talked about how so many people came up to you and said, hey, we had coffee, but we had no idea what you were going through. You talk about hitting a wall, but you also talked about Gumroad having like the most boring upward trajectory graph with nothing really super exciting going on. So what was this wall you hit despite Gumroad growing pretty consistently over time? Yeah, I think uh, the physical wall I hit was just the, um, the Series B that we tried to raise. We went out, so we had raised you know, 8 million bucks in six months with basically no team. And so we had an insanely long burn. So we went from, I think we closed the series A in, in May, 2012 
And that was 7 million led by Kleiner Perkins and everyone took their pro rata. And so we had, I think, you know, three years basically before we had to really be like, okay, we need to raise money again. So I think part of it was we'd gone so long without any real external pressure. I think that was a mistake in hindsight. But I basically, I started talking to investors again and saying, hey, you know, it's, you know, a year from now, we're probably going to be raising money. These are our numbers. They look awesome up and to the right. And the investors are like, uh, no, um, this is uh, not where you need to be. If you're, if you're going to go out to raise a Series B, you know, 15, 20, 30 million bucks, sort of at a 100 million plus dollar valuation, you need to be growing a lot faster. Your numbers need to be a lot bigger. Your trajectory, your potential basically is just, is it, there's none of that here, right? And, and I actually looked up uh, one, I was taking notes along this process and I was sharing it with the team, which is something I'm, I'm very glad that I did. So it was never a surprise when things got really tricky for us. One investor from, from actually one of the firms that gave us a, a, a Series A term sheet was, said, you know, you're growing 7% a month you need to be growing 10 to 20% a month. Those are the types of companies that we're looking at right now in your sort of in your stage. And I think that's important to realize is when you're fundraising, you're not fundraising in a vacuum. You're not just building a good business. You're building a business that is competing with 10, 15, 20, 50, I don't even know how many other businesses for, you know, a series B term sheet from less than 10 top tier firms, you know? that can invest in this sort of thing. And so when, when everyone else is growing at a, at a certain rate, you know, 10, 20%, or even if just one of them is, there's one spot. And if you're not that spot, you're a no, you're not, you know, there's no second place basically. And that's the wall that we ran up against was we just were not growing fast enough. And I think a lot of people, um, you know, and including former team members I've had conversations with, they're like, man, we could have done something differently. We, we could have raised money if we told a different story. But I think the truth is, and Josh Klopp, Koppelman, one of our investors, says uh, there's nothing like uh, uh, bad numbers to f up a good story. At the end of the day, I think that's relatively true because when you raise money, you have to do it on potential. You have to do it on trajectory because the numbers, frankly, are so absurd that you can't raise money based on your normal metrics, right? Like you can't. Otherwise, you know, they would go invest in like a very boring, profitable company that had a guaranteed risk uh, rate of return. What they want to do is invest in incredibly high risk things that have incredibly high rewards if and when they work out. And when you have, you know, at the time, at this point, five years of data, revenue, uh, transaction uh, data, et cetera, and those things look, show the company growing at a rate of 25, 35, 50%, even 80% a year when the other companies they're looking at are growing faster, it's very difficult to, to, to say, look, like, it is growing like this, but we're still going to be a billion dollar company because you just extrapolate and it's like, okay, this is going to take about 40 years to be a billion dollar company at this rate. And I think it's just important to really understand that, you know, while everyone's in it to build cool stuff and change the world, at least hypothetically, at the end of the day, investors are still money managers, right? They have a job. It's not their money. They, they raised a bunch of money and they need to provide you know, a three X return in 10 years. And you just start doing the math on what that looks like for firms. And they need an Uber and they need a LinkedIn, they need a Pinterest, they need a Slack um, in order to, to make the fund work for them. And if you're not going to be that, and there's a lot of data that shows you're not going to be that, you'd have to come up with something incredibly compelling um, to change their mind. That's um, um, And I just don't know if that's possible. It's pretty brutal as a founder to be in that situation where you're not what these investors need. You've got numbers, and the numbers mm-hmm. are basically telling investors, hey, you're not going to hit it out of the park for us. But the numbers are also telling you that 
your company's working and people like it and you're, doing, yeah. you know, two X a year. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you did early on to get these numbers to consistently go up and to the right, even if they weren't going up quite as fast as investors wanted them to? Yeah, I think one of the things that we did well was we really built the correct product. I think we were really focused. And one of the things that I always try to do is build things that have an, has sort of have a built in sort of word of mouth growth component to them because I just, I'm so scared of, of having to, to do that on purpose. I think it's incredibly difficult and I have mad respect for people that figure that, that part of the problem out. But for me, it's like, I want to build a phenomenal product. That product, if it's great, is going to grow by itself. And then we can think about our sales funnels and our sales function as how do we just get this in front of the right people that are going to fall in love with this product? And all we're doing is raising awareness, basically. We're not sort of selling in, in, in you know, we're educating somebody on a problem that they they know they have. And we're just telling them, hey, by the way, this solution exists now. And um, I think we did, you know, that was just a lot of direct sales, basically. You know, a lot of cold emails, a lot of cold calls. Mm-hmm. You know, we try to think about, okay, these are the the, you know, the aggregation points of these sorts of communities, you know, these, these are, this is where all the musicians are. This is where all the filmmakers are. This is where they hang out, you know, Sundance, different talent agencies, labels, et cetera. And we just really had to like make it happen. We had to sort of push the boulder up the hill. And there are no real secrets, I think, to that. It was really just crafting, you know, personalized emails to people saying, Hey, we built this thing called Gumroad. You know, this is what it does. It helps um, anyone that has content. We sort of do an all-in-one e-commerce you know, we go, we do the credit card form, the payments, the marketing page, the receipt, the invoicing, the content delivery, the download, the streaming, rentals, subtitles, everything you need to sell your documentary. And you can take 95% of the revenues home if you, if you sell with Gumroad. All you got to do is have an audience and it works. You know, I think it, it works if you do that. Um, people are going to say, cool, yeah, that's a, that's a fit for me. Most people are not. At the end of the day, most people are pretty happy with their lives. There's a sort of profound amount of inertia. Everyone is making things work. And so, you know, I think, I think there is a a lesson there, which is to sort of focus on the people that already have the need. It's incredibly difficult to convince somebody that they have a problem if their life is, is going fine. Right. Like to say, yeah, you're, you know, you're already selling this thing on, on, you know, you have a deal with Netflix, for example, and you're, you're making a, a few hundred thousand dollars a year as a filmmaker, you should actually stop doing that and totally change your business model because this new way is even better. It just doesn't work. I think the, Humans are incredibly fearful of risk and, you know, loss aversion, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, that was honestly it. And even one of the things that we used to track was our organic versus sourced growth. And we had this organic curve that was almost nothing. I mean, so much of our volume in the first two, three years, I think over 80% of our volume when we, when we started thinking about the series B, so probably even 2013, 2014. So like two, three years in with a, you know, with a, a full product team, et cetera. We were still mostly funneled, fueled by direct sourced growth, people that we reached out to and, and had to teach about the product. Because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're a relatively young company. We're unknown. We have a weird name. We don't have enough SEO power. It's so difficult to build a business that's purely self-serve. I think the beauty of SaaS is now, for example, when we had to do the layoffs, we continued to grow because we'd invested so much in the self-serve component. But the truth of the matter is, three, four years in, the vast majority of the sales were coming through people that we had built relationships with. And I think this is similar even with with our own creators. When we see successful creators, I know Adam did an interview with you recently, 
a lot of that is building relationships with people. And when you're, you know, that 40,000 bucks, right? Like when you're ready to go, like you can see that pay off, right? That's the version of my, of, of all those retweets on my medium post is really taking the time to build these really, uh, these re- relationships up similar with when I fundraised, right? It was, it, it was mostly people that I'd known before. And if it wasn't someone I'd known before, it was someone that introed me that I had known before that was willing to vouch and put their reputation on the line for me as a person. And so I think that's like really, really, really important is to say, okay, I'm building an app, you know, that in the podcasting vertical and we help people, we build these uh, marketing pages for, for people with podcasts. That's not going to happen organically. <laughs> you can't, you can build the best product, but at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's unlikely to happen. You're going to have to figure out, okay, who's the perfect customer for this? Okay, like go email them, go talk to them, get an intro to them and get them to use your software. And if they don't use your software, figure out why they're not using your software. And that's just kind of what you have to do. I mean, Stripe is, I'm sure, the same story. Of course, now they're probably relatively self-serve. But in the beginning, you know, it was like, okay, like let's ping every single YC company. One of I was one of the first users. I was a friend of John, right? Like these are relationships that existed off of just a purely like, you know, I Googled, saw Stripe credit card processing and said, oh yeah, sure, I'll sign up for this thing. I'll just give them all of my banking information <laughs> and let them power 100% of my business's revenue. That's, you know, that sounds like a great idea. And it was a lot uglier at the time. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think that's, it's just, it's just so important. And, and I wish more people talked about it too. You know, people write these articles about these crazy growth hacks and, and all that sort of stuff. But those things only work once you have your initial audience, right? Once you already have your initial set of users, then you can start messing around with stuff like that. Like that stuff works well, you know, as a multiplier on, on, on your existing growth. But at the end of the day, you still need your existing growth to, to make that stuff happen and to make that stuff work out long, long term. And I think the other thing that I think sometimes people miss is they listen to people talk about these things, even like me, right? Like you're talking to someone who did this seven, eight years ago, which is very different than uh, someone doing this today, right? The markets are totally different. The way that you might get into contact with people is so, uh, so profoundly different. And I think it's really important to talk to people that are just a little bit ahead of you. They have more skin in the game to teach you and to help you out as well. It's funny because it's so deceptive from the outside looking in. Like you look at Stripe, you don't see salespeople doing direct sales to people to sell Stripe. You just see the sort of self-serve form. You look at Gumroad, you don't see all of you guys working behind the scenes to like get the word out to tons of people. You just kind of see like, oh, here's why I sent it for Gumroad. So I think a lot of people who want to start a company really underestimate how much you really need to be putting in a lot of this this work, this like relationship building, this one-on-one sales, this outreach to people to really get the ball rolling. That's totally spot on. And even when you see stories like, you know, 50,000 people saw Gumroad in the first day or whatever, none of those people used Gumroad, right? Most of them didn't, right? Like we basically had this crazy spike and then it went back to whatever our normal growth curve was, was which at the time was basically nothing. So I think that's another important thing to understand is that, you know, having an amazing launch on product hunt might look really sexy, but that's sort of like winning a winning an award for a restaurant, right? Like all that says is that your your community, your 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 peers think you're great, but that has nothing to do with if anyone's actually going to eat at your restaurant long term. And so I think that's also important to understand is at the end of the day, make sure you're measuring the right thing, which is how many people are actually using the software, paying you money to use this software, not just oh I got number one on on product hunt. Um, that's not typically what builds what builds great businesses. 
So I'm still on the Wayback Machine, scrolling through different versions of what <laughs> it looked like in the past. And it's funny, like in 2011, you had a quote on your homepage from Nathan Barry, who I've also had on this podcast, mm-hmm. and who also had a big inflection point in his business where it wasn't growing, it was super small. And then he just said, screw it, I'm going to start doing direct sales. And like that was his breakthrough moment. I think what's yeah. remarkable about your story is you guys were doing this, you said like the first three or four years, this is like your primary engine of growth. For most people that I talk to, they're like, yeah, I, I got my first hundred customers, my first thousand customers by just sending a ton of emails. But after that, it kind of took on a life of its own. When did things switch around for you guys, if ever? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think things switched around by necessity when we literally couldn't afford a sales team anymore. And so it was like, I remember that actually, because the way that I was thinking about it was, you know, we're, we failed to raise a series B. We, we had all these conversations with investors. It wasn't happening. I was going to shrink the team to tw- from 20 to five. And we did. And, and we got to profitable. And what I told myself was, I'm going to run this business for a couple years and see what happens. And, you know, this is, we have no sales team. I'm doing all the support at this point. We basically can't ship any new features, right? We don't have enough resources to really do that. What happens to Gumroad if we literally do nothing besides the bare minimum? And that's what we did, you know, and you look at that graph from 2015 to 2018, it's, it's the best part of the graph, you know, it continued to grow. And so, you know, it paid off. I think we'd sort of the journey down that mountain, that boulder was gaining momentum and we're actually growing faster. The rate of change is actually increasing every year as well, the rate of growth. But it was almost undetectable because those numbers were so small in the early days, right? And, and I think the reason for that is because, you know, when we do a direct sales with Eminem, he does $2 million in two days, right? We're processing $20 million in 2014, I think. So like you just do the math on that. It's like, you know, a 10th of our volume from one user in two days, Whereas, you know, a self-serve person like me is like, I'm going to sell my pencil icon on Gumroad and make seven bucks. Like you just do the (laughs) math on that. (laughs) And you just, what what, what happens is it it goes to that that whole vanity thing where what you're doing is you're tracking all of these people that use your software, like the 50,000 people, the number one on Product Hunt, all the accounts that are being created, but you're not tracking your revenue, your like how, how many people are actually making a living using your software, which is going to be a lot smaller. And you even look at a company like what I highly recommend a, a lot of startup founders do is go read the S1s of some of these uh, these companies that have recently gone public. Look at Slack, look at Zoom, look at PagerDuty. The number of companies that drive the majority of their revenue is often in the hundreds. Like think about that. Like your Slack. <laughs> This is a company that basically everybody uses at this point. Like you'd be probably surprised if you met a friend that didn't know what Slack was or didn't use it for some something or the other, right? And I think something like 850 companies drive 40% of their revenue or something like that. It just is insane, uh, the, the long tail of these things. And I think if you look at the people that advertise on Facebook or Google or Twitter, you'll see a similar long tail where there are very few companies that spend an insane amount of money. You know, I think Microsoft's contract with Slack is like 4 million bucks a year, right? Like think about how many gum roads you'd need to get paid 4 million bucks a year. You need thousands of them, right? Um, or at least hundreds. Um, and so I think often, and, and by the way, Microsoft is never going to sign up for Slack self-service. That's just not going to happen, right? I'm sure if you look at Stripe, you'll see a similar story where like a huge amount of the revenue is coming from these massive marketplaces like Lyft or, or what have you, right? And so I think 
part of it is just being open and honest about that internally. I think one of the, one of the really hard things about that is that people don't want to talk about it because it, it creates this dissonance with why you started the company in the first place. Because, you know, imagine you're Square, you're Stripe, you're Gumroad, you're Shopify, and you're like, yeah, we're going to help democratize, right? That's the word. We're going to democratize this ability. All these people that are, have never been able to monetize their content or, or, or launch a SaaS product are going to be able to do this. And then you look at your numbers and you're like, wait a second, all of our money is coming from Microsoft. I'm pretty sure they could have done this already, you know? <laughs> Uh, but at the end of the day, it's just, it is what it is. Uh, a lot of your, a lot of your money is going to come from these very, very few companies, even with us. Um, you know, we have an incredibly long tail, but even with us, like, you know, the top user on Gumroad, you know, we process $6 million a month. The top user on Gumroad does around over $500,000 a month. So 8% or so of our monthly volume is one person. So even at, when, even when you look at the law, sort of a, a product that seems sort of almost entirely directed at the long tail, you're still having a power law within the long tail itself, right? We don't have a Microsoft doing 4 million bucks a year, paying us 4 million bucks a year, but we do have a creator, you know, the Microsoft in our, in our world uh, uh, doing, doing really, really well. And so I think it's just important to understand that you will have, you know, in gaming, they're, they're called whales, right? These uh, people that spend tens of thousands of dollars a month on, on Farmville. And that's the majority of the, of the revenue. And that allows you to build software for all, for all of these other people. But, but I think it's important to understand that the reason your business works at the scale that it does is because you, you, you have these beasts, these, these behemoths spending a lot of money for your software. And at the end of the day, they're not going to sign up for your software organically. It's just maybe one day, but you know, for now, you're, if you, if, if Stripe wants Lyft, there's, I guarantee at least one phone call that's happened. <laughs> In that in that process, and so how does this affect your strategy running Gumroad today? Do you spend a lot of time looking for these whales to sign them up? We've actually done the opposite, and honestly, it's a, it's a tough one because I think a lot of people, including former employees, were like, "Look, we should just focus on M M&M, and M, right? If he makes two million bucks in two days, we get fifty of those, and we're we're good." And it just wasn't really the type of business I wanted to build. I saw, you know, that power law, and I said. Someone needs to support these creators at the end of the day, these independent creators. Basically what happens is all of these companies go up market because they see what I see, right? These whales making the vast majority of the revenue for them and they stop supporting these folks. And then there's a new service that does the same thing. And then they go up market and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so my, my philosophy now is like, we're not going to try to build a massive company. We're not going to seek the whales. They are going to become whales on our platform and some of them will leave, unfortunately, because they need certain functionality or, uh, you know, a lower uh, transaction fee or all of these sorts of things, a, a dedicated customer support person, an SLA, some security features, et cetera. And we're just going to focus on the, what we call the zero to one, the people just getting started. Because at the end of the day, someone needs to help them. And the, 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 the amount of value being created, I think, by Gumroad creators um, is, is massive even though we can't capture all of the value. An example of this is someone you mentioned, actually, Nathan Berry, right? ConvertKit founder. He was on Gumroad. He made a significant amount of money on Gumroad selling books and software. And he used those uh, proceeds to start ConvertKit. And now ConvertKit is a much larger business than Gumroad is and doing an amazing uh, amount of good for the world. And so I think for me, it's tricky, honestly. It's not easy. And I definitely am still figuring it out. But for me, it's like, I really just want to bias towards the convert kit stories and bias less towards the, the sort of the enterprise uh, sales model. 
even though it means we're not going to build as profoundly significant of a business, we will be able to build a business that people hopefully credit with some important inflection point in in their life. And then the other thing I think is just we're going to talk a lot about building the business and hopefully we'll we'll be able to get some of that satisfaction, not in the form of revenue or valuation or uh, you know a nice bank account balance, but people saying thank you and uh, appreciating the work that we've done. Similarly to you know a company that I, I like a lot uh, is uh, is WordPress, the automatic team. And I think you know they I don't know some amount of the internet, twenty percent of the internet or something is powered by WordPress. And you know if that was the case and they had a very different model, they could be doing a lot better. They'd be a lot more famous, uh, et cetera. Um, but at the end of the day, like I think that the amount of value that WordPress has created for the world, the amount of value that the Rails framework has created for the world, uh, Laravel, et cetera, is in my opinion, billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars, maybe trillions of dollars cumulatively. And certainly over time will be, will be true. And none of those people are, are, are going to be worth billions of dollars or anything close to the amount of value that they've created. And I think that's fine. I think I think that's great. Um, I think as a society, it would be cool if we recognize that a little bit more. And if, if the sort of the status and, and the leaderboard sort of that exists in everybody's head is the, the sort of the scoreboard on the, on the side of the wall of the Silicon Valley basketball court is, is not revenue, is not valuation, is not number of employees, but, but value creation. And we, we figured out a way to measure that. I think society would just be a lot better for it. All this money that, you know, basically, these people become billionaires because of the status. And then that money just sits around, <laughs> frankly, right? Like I know some of these people, they don't even have cars. Like, you know, I always joke that if I, <laughs> if I made a, a buckload of money, I would buy a Tesla, but I could do that now if I really wanted to. Uh, I just haven't. And so I think, yeah, I think if, if, if as a society, we could reward putting some of that money back into the system or, or building the, our companies in a way that means we never got that money in our bank account in the first place, right? But we did get some of the status, some of the credit, some of the fame. I think uh, society would be uh, would be better off. I think humanity would be better off. And I think uh, I think there would just be a little bit less animosity in the world towards other people if we were just a little bit, quote unquote, less uh, sel- uh, selfish about some of this stuff. And I, you know, obviously it's a little bit hip- hypocritical for me to say, I think, because I certainly tried to do that and I failed. And I wrote this post about it and that gave me all of this status and um, and, and boosted my ego and, and, and all of those sorts of things. But I see the value of that now where I'm like, oh, cool. If I can, if I can get that, you know, without building a billion dollar company, that's not bad. That's a pretty good, uh, a pretty good place to be. And I'm sort of trying to convince other people like, Hey, is this an accident or, or is this actually a thing that more people would want to do on purpose if they knew this was a possibility? Maybe you'd be able to do this without having to, you know, lay off 75% of your company. <laughs> that would be a, that would be kind of, kind of nice. It's appreciating the intangible effects of the work that you do is is, is tricky. Like you, you're talking about people in Provo and the way that they live, kind of in service to each other, and for kind of the here and now and the people in their community. I wonder, you know, if I tell you something like Gumroad has paid out over two hundred million dollars to creators and artists over the years, what's the emotional impact of that on you versus the emotional impact of you being able to help someone in your oil painting class, you know, reach some goal that they hadn't reached before? Yeah, I do wonder about that. And honestly, I think it's all the same at the end of the day. Like when we we sent, you know, 400 bucks to to some creator, we have this thing that we launched called the Gumroad Creators Fund because we started making profits and I just didn't really know what to do with it. 
And so I saw all these Mormons around me tithing 10% to their church. And I was like, oh, we can tithe <laughs> to our creators. We can redirect 10% of our, our profits and, and give back. And so we started doing that uh, this year. And we, you know, we gave 400 bucks to this woman who's going to a First Nations conference and wants to bring a couple of her students, uh, her, her female students uh, with her. And, you know, 400 bucks is not a lot of money to a venture back company. That's nothing. And nor would they ever make this investment because it's never going to be the thing that makes them, uh, you know, that, that really inflects their growth curve, which is typically what you're looking for because you need to raise more money, et cetera, et cetera. But it changed her life, you know, and she sent us this YouTube video and it was emo super emotional for me. And it just was like, wow, this goes so far, you know? And I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, there's this story about the, the little girl with the starfish, right? Where someone, someone says, what are you doing? She's throwing starfish back into the water, right? And uh, someone says like, what are you doing? This is stupid. Like, this doesn't matter. Look how many millions of starfish you think you're really making a difference. And she says, it matters for this one. It matters for this one. It matters for this one. And I think at the end of the day, like that's all there is, you know, the, the, the ocean is, is just, uh, is just made of drops in the water of water. And at the end of the day, like that's, you know, you can look at the ocean and you could say, okay, we we're gonna, it's only worth solving this problem if we can move the whole ocean. But the truth is like, if everyone thought smaller, I think, uh, we, it would be, it would be good. Um, but I think it's sort of to answer your question more directly. I think, yeah, when I, when I help someone oil paint or if, even if I'm just oil painting myself, like the, the emotional impact of that, the serotonin, that sort of the dopamine or whatever that fires off in my, in my brain is, is larger probably than even hearing $200 million. At the end of the day, uh, we're massively driven by, by helping other people and by hearing these stories and, these stories are not data. They're not numbers. They're individual people whose lives changed because of something that you did. And that is the way that we're built, I think, is to help those people, to help other people. And at the end of the day, numbers are just numbers, you know? And this is, I think, one of the sort of, I think one of the reasons that actually founders that get more successful get less happy over time is because what happens is you, you see the number go up like crazy, right? You, you see the 10 go to hundred, go to a thousand, go to a million. But then all the, all the stories that you hear, are, which are in general negative ones, because otherwise, you know, they're just going on with their life. That goes from one to four to 10 to 20. So actually as a percentage of the good stories, it's diminishing, but as an absolute number, it's growing, going up over time. And that's all your brain can process. You're just seeing all the people that are like, hurting because of what you've built or their lives are worse off, uh, for what you've built. And I think that's a huge reason that, that some of these, uh, that some of these people go into these, these, uh, sort of depressive states because the stories are the things that matter to our brains. Um, you, I mean, you read, you know, you read like a, like you, you watch a Pixar movie and you start crying because like a toy <laughs> can't be with the other toy, right? That does, that's <laughs> Like that's insane, but your brain, like you just can't not cry because your brain perceives that story as valid and as true as anything else. But, you know, imagine if at the end of that toy story, it said 4 million toys were not reunited with their owners, right? Like you'd be like, that's weird, <laughs> but you know, that's just the way that we're built. And I think understanding and really sort of like really grokking like the, the way that we are built in ways that we cannot manipulate, cannot control. We can just sort of live within th th those things are really important to understand because if you want to be happy, which I think a lot of people do, do want that and also be in service of others, you know, work for yourself and work for other people. I think you're going to, 
a lot more people realize these things. You know, it's funny because I wrote this post and I came to some of these realizations and, and I know that anyone that has kids goes through this too, right? Um, I've heard it so many times, but you just need to go through it yourself. Um, you're, you know, I, I tell people you're going to read this medium post and then you're going to make all of these mistakes as well, because some of these things, you just kind of need to go through the motions and you kind of, your whole body needs to, needs to, to realize what it's doing before, before you're like, Oh, 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 that's what he meant. <laughs> you know, you could read uh meditations or, or by Marcus Aurelius or whatever, but at the end of the day, like it's not enough. You're not going to truly understand what someone's been through until you've, until you've been through it yourself. Yeah. And speaking of that, speaking of not really understanding what someone's been through and, and tough experiences, you laid off 75% of Gumroad's workforce. You went from 20 people down to a company of five and then down to a company of one. So at some point, I think it was just you back to being by yourself. Yeah, just me. What was that whole process like and how did it feel going through those layoffs? Oh man. I mean, it was, it was tough. I mean, we knew it was coming, right? And so it was like always there in the, in sort of in the distance. And as it got closer and closer, it was just, it was like, I, I describe it like treading water where, you know, we were alive, but certainly we were like running out of oxygen. And at some point, if a VC didn't come along in their boat and save us, we were going to drown. And, uh, you know, one of the decisions we made was to say, okay, we could either cut the team in half now and then have two years of runway, or we can say, look, we're, we're going to go for it. We're going to keep the team the same and we're just going to, you know, we're going to work really hard and, and hopefully we can sort of inflect the numbers and, and we'll raise money and all will be good. And it didn't happen. But I think the thing that I did really well was to communicate with the whole team the whole time that we were talking to investors was going to be brutally difficult. And the default state was we were going to have to do a round of layoffs. And so when it happened, it was less like, hey, I'm doing this. And it was more like, hey, this thing that we already agreed upon is now happening because, you know, I'm not doing anything else. It was, it was sort of the default. And so but it was so hard. And I think honestly, one of the hardest things about it was it was the first time in a long time for me, maybe in my whole life, that I had sort of so visibly sort of contradicted that story that I had been telling myself and telling other people, frankly, and, and the world had been telling me about building, being one of these, these people that was going to build this billion dollar company and, and do, do the thing. And it was, it was like, I, honestly, sometimes it felt like I was on you know a TV show or something, right? The Truman Show it felt so perfect. And when that wasn't going to happen, it was like, well, it's going to happen anyways. We're going to raise money. It's obviously these ups and downs are also built into the TV shows. But then when we did the layoffs, it was like, oh, okay, I guess, um, I guess this is it. You know, like it was just a very, it was like, imagine if you're watching some movie and then at the sort of the final battle, Frodo just gets killed by Smeagol and then he walks away with the ring. Like, <laughs> uh, I love these Hobbit analogies. Uh, <laughs> that's sort of, you know, but that's really how it felt. It just felt wrong, frankly, you know, it just didn't make sense to me. And, and then the, the thing that made it even harder was at least I felt like I could pretend that I, I could sort of project a different image to the world. I didn't have to tweet that this was happening, but then the TechCrunch, TechCrunch wrote, wrote about it and there was this, you know, I was on the front page of TechCrunch again for the first time in a little while and it was for the exact, it was for a reason, you know, that I did not want. And that, that was really hard because all of a sudden it was like, it was a story that other people knew, but I didn't know how many people knew it. So I was kind of in this weird mode where people would come by the office for a meeting that I had scheduled 
and the office would be basically empty. And maybe they'd read the TechCrunch article, maybe they hadn't. And I had sort of to play this face and basically lie, you know, be sort of dishonest. And I'm sure I was not present in those meetings to a, to a large degree. And actually, since the article came out, people have told me that. They're like, yeah, I came to the office and it was a very weird meeting. And I'm glad you're doing good now, you know? And so I wish, I think, in hindsight that I had been more honest from the get-go. And it's like, look, this happens. We're going to get through it. But I think partly it was like, I didn't want to tell creators. I didn't want creators to find out if they didn't need to find out because they'd leave and who knows what would happen with Gumroad. And maybe it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy and we'd go into a death spiral and then we die and then I would be real failure. And so I pretended that everything was fine and it was just the worst thing ever because I was still living in San Francisco. I was still paying a lot of money in rent. I was still hanging out with all these people that were there for startups. And I suddenly like didn't have anything to say at these parties, at these dinners, at these hangouts. And I think everyone knew what was up, but you know, it's like you ever have a friend go through something really difficult and you just don't even know what to say to them. And so you say nothing, you kind of pretend like everything's fine. And then they've, they are, they are like, no one cares. Like no one cares about this. And, you know, like I had a, a friend who's, whose uh, husband passed away and she, you know, she said no one reached out to her um, about it. And, you know, she felt terrible. And then she all, but she was like, look, I also didn't reach out to anybody. And it was just like this, this thing, like no humans really know what to do in these situations. Yeah. I just, I just remember feeling like incredibly lonely. I had a support network, but I wasn't engaging with it at all. I hung out with my mom, this, uh, most recent uh, holiday season. And, and I asked her, I was like, I was writing this article and I was like, Hey, like when, uh, or I was thinking about writing this article and I asked her when, you know, when I told her about all of this stuff that went down and the layoffs and everything. And she said, just now, <laughs> you know, you never told me and I never wanted to ask or bug you or like, you know, stress you out. And so I waited basically until today. So I was like, okay, I need to write this article then because if my own mom, like there's like, who, how many people have thought about this and not been able to confront me or talk to me about it or how many you know people could learn or just feel validated or feel like they're not alone because because everyone is too scared to talk about this stuff. And that's really one of the key moments that I think got me to like, okay, I'm going to write about this. I'm going to sort of publicly declare myself a failure. And luckily I'm in Provo. So uh, if everyone thinks I'm an, a moron, like, it's fine, whatever. I'm a painter now, you know, I'll just fully embrace the painter lifestyle. You know, I'll be like, uh, what's another metaphor? Like, uh, the guy from uh, Luke Skywalker, right. Uh, and just go to the mountains and, and just yeah, be alone. Just hang out by yourself, hang out by myself. It'll be good. Me and my paints. And then, uh, it turns out like sort of the exact opposite thing happened. And it turns out everyone wanted to hear this story and, 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 or wanted to hear a story like this because, people had them and didn't want to talk about it or, or whatever the reasons are. But I think people were like, I think it was like sort of almost felt like this like collective breath of fresh air in the industry um, where it's like, Oh, cool. Yes. Like we're not perfect. And, and like, <laughs> uh, thanks for writing about it. So I don't have to, you know, sort of thing, which is a uh, kind of funny, but yeah, yeah, no, I think it was, it was, it's not easy to pull off a good failure story. Yeah, it's funny because we almost joke about them, you know, like they're kind of a meme, like the sort of the failure medium post. And I think I think part of it is because even in those failures, people are trying to position themselves as successes and make a point or sell a new product or something like that. And I think with me, it was just like, I have no skin in the game on, at this point, I thought, at least. I'm just going to write this thing. I'm not going to make a point. I'm not going to sell a product. 
I'm not going to hype up anything else. Uh, or, you know, I'm just going to say, look, this is what happened. You know, like at the end of the story, I say like, you know, I had a punchline, I think at the end, but I removed it and it was just like, this is my story, <laughs> uh, you know, for better or worse. Um, take what, you know, take, take from it what you will. And, and, uh, a bunch of uh, people that were giving me feedback were like, you need to punch your ending. Like you need, uh, you know, if you want this to go viral, if you want people to share this thing, like you need to say like something controversial or opinionated or, or whatever. And I was like, I tried, I, I had a few drafts with something in, like that in there. And I was just like, I, I can't because it's, I just, I'm exhausted. You know, like I just need, I feel like I just need to hit publish and, and, and tell the story. And ref, it's a, it's a reflection. It's not, it's, you know, I was inspired by Susan Fowler who wrote reflecting on my very weird year at Uber is what she called the post about the, all the se sexual harassment and all that stuff that happened at Uber. And it was just like, I just need, you know, it was her. It's just, I need to get this off my chest. It's I'm reflecting on this thing. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not like, you know, Uber should die, you know, or whatever. It was just reflecting on my very weird year at Uber, like no mention of anything crazy. And I was inspired by that. And I was like, that's what I want to do. Like, I just want to, say, tell my story, get this off my chest. 90% of the value was me just writing it. And if it goes, you know, well, um, people like it, that's great. They'll share it. Um, and if not, they won't. And, and that's fine too, because I don't know how many people I want reading about my failure anyways. And, you know, or, you know, it, it worked. I think people, people liked it. And I think people almost like it was kind of the anti article, anti failure article too, because actually it was a, it was an article about success. You know, it was like, I actually built this great thing. I just didn't really know it at the time. And now I do. And that's cool. And it's okay to say, Hey, look, I built something cool as well. And I think that's the other thing that I think a lot of people appreciate. And I think Silicon Valley almost has this kind of weird sort of self-deprecating nature. It's like, we can't, when we do succeed, it's like, what's the point? <laughs> because no one buys a nice car anyways. Like what, you know, like, I feel like, uh, it's this weird thing that happens where like all these people fail, but then even the people that succeed, I feel like our culture is so like, we didn't do this for other, for ourselves. So we can't even buy a nice car. Like we can't, you know, I had, I remember meeting up with a friend who sold a company and, and he, uh, had an Aston Martin, uh, and another friend who had an Audi R8. They're the only like two nice cars I've ever seen in San Francisco. And he like apologized to me basically. <laughs> I was like, Hey, could you like drop, like, he's like, how are you going to get home? I was like, Oh, I'll just call an Uber. He's like, I'll drop you off. But just like, please don't tell anyone I own this car. And I saw him like, dude, this car's sick. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I know it's an Audi R8. It's stupid. But like, I've always wanted one. I'm like, you don't have to apologize to anybody, you know? Well, that's the culture. Uh, he was like, SF. yeah, it's just a different culture. It is though. But then it's like, what? You're not doing it for it's, yourself. But yeah. And it's like, it's like, it's like so wrong to admit that you are, you know, to some degree, you are doing this for yourself. Like you are doing this because you want fame. You want status. You want to build something cool. You want people to say, wow, you're actually pretty good at what you do. And I, I, I just think it would be healthier if everyone kind of just was like, yes, it's okay. It's okay to sort of be who you are. And, and, it's, and it's almost the opposite effect where people can detect that too. You know, it's like, I think people, you know, obviously don't, don't like when people are pretending to be better than they are, but, the, but the, the same goes, I think the other way around and it's okay to be like, yeah, we worked really hard and, and we won. And it, you know, obviously there are a lot of signals and a lot of factors and, and we're grateful for all of them, but you know, part a component of that was, you know, being smart, working hard and doing the thing and giving it a shot. And I think it's okay, or at least should be okay. I think to say that, you know, but you're right. It is sort of the culture of Silicon Valley it is to sort of like accept no reward. 
the valuation speaks for itself and that's that's all. But I don't I don't think that's true. You tweeted about a week ago that life is a series of distractions from existential dread. Is that what Gumroad is for you? Yeah, well, it was a little bit of a, hopefully <laughs> a little bit of a sarcastic sort of tweet, but I think, I, I think it, it is true in a large sense that like at the end of the day, the problems that plague us have plagued humanity since before technology and before software and probably before money and writing. And those problems will stay the same and, and be the same even when we have like a Dyson sphere around some star and we're all, you know, we have invented teleportation and stuff. Like we're still going to be like, oh crap, like what, what are we doing? What, what's the point of all of this crap? But I think that's, yeah, I think it's just sort of this acknowledgement that like we all suffer from sort of the same demons that we all deal with the same rough problems and, and, you know, we can distract ourselves and, and, and it's okay to call them distractions because at the end of the day, like, you know, Gumroad and Apple and Microsoft and Facebook are all just tiny, tiny, tiny things in the, in the span of the universe or the multiverse or whatever scientists have, have discovered so far. And to me, it's, it's a sense of freedom to be like, it, it, it lowers the stakes in some sense. And it lets me kind of do what I feel like doing instead of trying to like solve the world's problems. And, you know, I'm sure some people disagree with that, but I think for me, at least it's like, look, like we can really get riled up about all of the, the things that plague our society and spend every waking second trying to fix that and getting everybody to vote and, and, and doing all of these sorts of things. But I think at the end of the day, there's like a, I think there, it's important to recognize that like the world looks the way it looks and it will roughly look the way it looks 50 years from now. And, and these things will change certainly, but I don't know. I feel like we have a lot less impact on them um, than we think. I think if Steve Jobs didn't invent the iPhone, someone else would have. And like, we can care about these problems, but we should care about them and work towards them in a way that helps ourselves and like makes sure that we are feeling fulfilled and happy and, 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 and doing things for our own sake as well, because the, everything is a distraction, I think, from the sort of the core lived experience, which is happening on our, on our deep sort of subconscious. I think we're not that different from ants in that sense. Like we look at ants and sure they're doing stuff, but like they're sort of playing a role in a larger thing. And I think at the end of the day, like humans, humans believe that too. And, and I think actually one of the, that's one of the things I really picked up, I think living in Provo, which is, you know, as you mentioned, 89% Mormon. And even they believe, sure, you know, like they believe an actually much more significance to the mortal realm because uh, they believe it has like a, a very important purpose in the grand scheme of things. But also they believe in the insignificance of it, because if you think of eternal life, like this 70, 80, 90 years you have on this planet is going to be nothing. I mean, compared to any of that stuff, you know? And so I think it gives it, I think I copied a little bit of their perspective too, which is like, you know, do the best you can and, and hopefully there's something on the other side and, and that side is going to be way better than anything we have here. It doesn't mean you should just like sit around and wait to die or something like that, but you know, just like do what you can and do what you feel is right and what your conscious approves of. And, and if we all sort of do that, I think the world's going to be as good as it can be, but you know, sort of killing yourself over something is, is going to do not much more, you know? So if you want to kill yourself over something because you want to learn a lot or because you want to really help somebody, that's great. But just sort of, I think just for me, it was, it was about perspective. Um, it was about, yeah, I can totally kill myself, but, but, uh, it's, it's really important, uh, to just, yeah, to keep everything in perspective as well and be present in the moment and, 
and, uh, and take a break and like, you know, not over optimize every single thing that I do with my life. It's okay to just watch Netflix for an hour or two. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's another distraction, you know? Um, everything is distraction. I think it sort of levels the playing field. It's not like going to the gym versus Netflix versus doing a startup and I have to priority stack everything. These are all just the same sort of thing. They're a lot closer together than we think. We just are so, that's all we see. Uh, and so they look really different, but if you sort of expand your mind a little bit, I think they're, they're, they're all basically the same. It's, it's funny because business in a lot of ways is one of the ultimate distractions. As a founder, you have a million different things you can do at any point in time. And it can take up pretty much your entire life. Like you said, when you were in SF, like work was your number one priority besides sleep, which is really like not even, it's not optional. Yeah, but, <laughs> that's true. But you also, like you tweeted something recently. I'm just reading all your tweets at this point. You said startups shouldn't be scary or they should be scary. It shouldn't be dangerous, right? Scary is all the sort of things you have to do as a founder that are like, inherently hair raising, right? Pivoting when things aren't working, getting feedback, managing people who are smarter than you. But the dangerous stuff, that's where you, you sort of take this startup as a distraction too far, where you're racking up credit card debt, as you said, or you're sacrificing your health and your well-being. And I think, you know, if you if you get to that point where you're literally killing yourself for this business, and I think you are you've gotten to the point where you're missing the point. Yeah, no, I think that's spot on, I guess, because I said it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh I agree with, yeah, with myself, but, uh, no, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like, I think it's, it's, it is scary. Uh, just like roller coasters are scary. They're triggering like a very primal sort of fight or flight response within us when we do them and we do it for the thrill, but we acknowledge kind of what we're doing and we have good bounds. And if they actually led to a lot of deaths, we'd probably stop doing them. And I think, I think the same goes with anything else. Um, you know, you can do them, you can do them for the thrill, you can do them for the personal growth or just because it's fun or just because it, makes you not think about something else, which is a lot scarier. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, like it is important to, to consider if you are taking it too far and if you are sacrificing your life for this thing that is relatively insignificant, you know? And, and, and uh, yeah, I think exactly, exactly what startups are. I think sometimes people conflate scary and dangerous, you know, people say, Oh, is that, is it dangerous? I'm like, it's not dangerous. It shouldn't be dangerous. It's just a startup. It's just a tech business. You're sitting on a laptop in an air conditioned room, it can't be that bad. But some people do take it really, really, really far. They, they, you know, I met a founder uh, just uh, this week that said he sleeps on average four hours a day, and I said you're basically killing yourself slowly. You might not think that, but you know, there's a good chance that you that's what you are doing. You should go read this book, <laughs> and maybe you'll change your habits. But yeah, I mean, you can totally do it. But yeah, at the end of the day, like, you know, you have one life. You can decide to 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 go, you know, crazy with it and do all sorts of stuff, but. At the end of the day, like everyone has roughly the same amount of time, roughly the same amount of happiness, I think, generated regardless of your position in society. And you should work to, to improve your life in a way that also improves other people's lives. And I really do believe that like uh, in the same thing, similar sort of Provo learning, I think, is that if everyone did that, if everyone was really focused on, on just like being better, better people, it's a very sort of conservative approach, I think. But if everyone was just better on a, on a local level and, and, and being a better version of themselves and helping other people, truly helping other people and sort of treating others like they want to be treated, et cetera. There's a great line I heard the other day, which is like, treat, treat your children, like how, how you wish your parents treated you, you know, it's a sort of passing of the torch, passing of humanity to the next version of humanity, to the next version of humanity. Like if we 
pass on really good positive energy. We're certainly not going to fix every problem in a single generation. I think things take a lot longer to fix than they, than they do to break. But that is ultimately the way that we will move forward as a society. And we need to, we, we need to do that. And then also just, you know, treat ourselves pretty well too, because I don't know, what's the point? Like what's, you know, if you, if you work your, your ass off, like you're not even going to see for you, the universe stops existing the second you die. Right. So like, what's the point? I think there should be some, some selfishness. I think for me, it's, it's, it's aligning selfishness with selflessness. It's figuring out what can I do that makes the world better, that also makes me happier. And, and that's where Gumroad is now. And, and, you know, things like doing this podcast, it's like, look, it's selfish for me. I get to basically rant on all these things. I love doing that. I get to talk to you. That's awesome. Um, I get to, you know, basically produce content that like a lot of people are going to listen to, but, um, it's also good. And I think it's also valuable for the world. And I think if, if people can sort of like align themselves uh, with each other in a way that does that, that fulfills themselves and, and helps their own communities and, and broader society. I think if we could do that better as a system, I think, um, and we made it really easy, you know, for someone who isn't aligned with their surroundings to move, then, you know, we, we would be in a pretty, pretty solid place. The free market, I think would, would do some really cool stuff. We started this interview by talking about the differences in your life as a founder of a high growth startup and as a founder of Gumroad as a more anti hacker type business. So why don't we end the same way? What is on the top of your mind today? What are you thinking about in regards to growing and improving Gumroad? And how, if at all, is that affected by the fact that you are a more independent business than you ever were in the past? Yeah, honestly, it's similar in many, many ways. I, I, someone asked me this where they're like, are you happier now? You're, you seem happier. You're not working 60 hours a week anymore. But I think, you know, as I said, like it's, it's just, I've replaced a set of distractions with another set of distractions. And I feel like in, in general, my happiness level is pretty close long-term. I think the rolling average is probably pretty similar. It's probably less spiky, but yeah, I think in general, the way I think about Gumroad is, is how can we create the, the maximum amount of value in the world and how little do I have to do to make that happen? Like, can I find someone who's incredibly self-motivated and knows what they want Gummer to do. Maybe they're a user of the product themselves and pay them money to go do that thing. And I, I sort of want to almost like detach myself and my identity from Gummer as much as I can because I think ultimately that will lead to better decisions for the company because I'm making them, or the, the company is like be sort of allowing itself, I'm allowing the company to make its own decisions. And so a big part of that is hiring a different type of person, giving them no equity. So I'm like, hey, look, we're not selling this thing. Uh, we're not selling the vision of this thing to you. You want to work on this thing. You get paid pretty well for it. You get to sort of have an incredible amount of impact and self-direction. If that's interesting to you, like Gumroad might be a great fit. Otherwise, it's probably not. And that's okay. And that's, you know, I can, I'll tell the team, Hey, like I got to run. I got to do this speaking thing in Denver or whatever. And like I'll be gone for two days and, and that's fine. I don't have to be on all the time. I'm not trying because everyone, no one has equity in the company. It's not like, Oh, so I was gone. Therefore, my equity is going to be worth less. You know, yeah. There's this almost like freeing sense of it where people. Someone asked me, like, do you do you do you think people are are have less ownership, right? Like, how do you solve that problem now that you don't have equity? And I'm actually like, they actually have more ownership over the product. They have less ownership over the company, but now they're focused on just like if they get paid a hundred bucks an hour, two hundred bucks an hour to do whatever they want. In general, if we hire the right type of people, like they're going to do what's actually most beneficial to creators because that's why they're working on Gumroad and actually not what's most beneficial for their stock price because they don't have any of it. Um, and so actually we've seen like almost more, a more selfless 
I think, direction to the product. And I think strategically, and, and this I think is almost a necessity just because of the way that we're building the product right now, is we're just helping our current creators. We're not, I do no sales. I do, I don't talk to prospective customers anymore. I just say, hey, look, like I'm, my focus is on, on people that already use the platform. All you got to do is make one sale and now <laughs> you're a current customer and I'm happy to talk to you. But, you know, we, when we went through the down and out phase of Gumroad, like these people stuck with us and we're just going to build stuff for them. We're going to fix basically every bug that they report. We're going to make the site as performant, as speedy as possible. We're going to ship features that they've asked for for a long period of time. And that's it. And we're profitable. So even if none of that leads to growth, we're still going to be profitable. And the long-term hope is that actually really just focusing on our existing creator base and being really public and, and, and open and transparent about that is going to lead to more growth uh, more sustainable, long-term, organic, word-of-mouth growth than ever before. That's the dream. And then the other thing, I guess the last point, is I'm constantly trying to figure out how Gumroad can create value that has nothing to do with revenue. So we're going to do a series of animated shorts on YouTube for kids. We're going to release a comic strip that sort of is all about the suffering, the the, the problems and, and, and suffering that creators face. I wrote this post on Medium that did really well. We opened up our financials. I'm probably going to start doing open board meetings so people can start seeing what that looks like for a startup. What are all the ways that we can create value for creators and everybody else too? Because we can, because we're profitable and we don't need to grow and we don't need to raise more money. And and if we stay the same size, but we we double the amount of value that we're creating in the world, like that's better than, in my opinion, than growing the company's revenue by 10% and growing the volume by 10%. You know, That's pretty cool to hear Everybody has their own sort of indie hacker dream. You know, if they run a profitable business and they can do anything, what do you do? I tweeted about this yesterday. You know, do you retire? Yeah. Do you start another company? Do you keep working on your same company? And it's it's cool hearing how you're making these decisions about Gumroad that quite frankly, like I never hear the typical venture funded companies making these decisions. Everybody's sort of building for the hypothetical marginal next customer. Everybody's uh yeah. you know, trying to figure out what's gonna inflect their growth curve and get them to the next level, and if that means neglecting the current people, uh, so be it. So despite the similarities, it sounds like there's a lot of differences as well. Yeah. I mean, there's, I think, I mean, there's not a problem necessarily with that approach and, and certainly many people do that and I'm jealous sometimes of their success, but it never ends. I think for me, the, the important part about where I'm at is actually a government creator told me this. She said, enough is a decision, not an amount. And I really thought that was pretty profound because that's, you know, I am at enough. I'm good. Like I'm happy with the creators that we have and I'm just going to make their lives in like, I'm basically the way that I pitch it to, to the team and to, to friends and to other people I talk to is I want to do things that are so good that it just makes no sense. Literally makes no money, no sense, but also makes no comments. Like, why would we do this? You know, like, why would we open source government that hasn't, and I literally, it's because it makes no sense, which is why I want to do it. Like, I want to do things that like, they're so outside the realm of what normal businesses do. And that's sort of what makes it interesting. And that's what makes it make sense is because that's the stuff that, you know, people don't get it. So they share it and they appreciate it. And that's why I'm going to do it. I think we'll see. We'll see how it goes. But I think, yeah, to that point also, if, if enough is a decision, not an amount, when you are seeking that, when does it end? You know, like you, I, and I think there is this, this loop that happens and you just can't escape it. Like I'm surprised, frankly, sometimes when I see what, some of these large tech companies are doing like Uber and Facebook now is in the news a lot. And Google is in the news a lot as well for doing kind of these shady things. And I don't know 
necessarily, I think part of it is like the, their valuations are are so high and they sort of have no sort of grounding in their revenues and their actual trajectory. Amazon is another one. There's like 70x, you know, whatever earnings per share or something. And, and like, they have to just keep growing because they know that's why their revenues are so high. And so you just get trapped in this loop where you're just like, we need to just keep, it's the, it's the, it's the football helmet. If everyone was like, Hey, like, we're not going to play this game anymore. We're going to just go back to doing awesome stuff within reason. Great. But the problem is everyone's playing this game. And, and frankly, at the end of the day, if you're a public company, you're competing with everybody, every other public company and actually every other possible type of investment. And so you just kind of get on the hamster wheel. And to me, it's like, if I did build a billion dollar company and then IPO'd, I would still be on that game today. I'd still be doing that thing. I'd just be, you know, trying to run as fast as possible, grow the company, hire as many awesome people as possible, ship as many things, go global, go international, like build a massive sales team. Because one, I mean, I, I, I genuinely don't know where this goes because we've never been here before as, as a society, as humanity. And, and it's like, it seems clearly unsustainable to me, but it's been, you know, been like this for, you know, five plus years. And I think no one I've talked to really knows what's going on. So people are like, okay, whatever, it's fine. Let's just keep going. Let's just, you know, <laughs> um, I don't want to be the one that like opts out and then, you know, gets, gets destroyed by this. I think there's a big reason that Bitcoin is doing as well as it is right now, which is people are scared of the traditional system. No one really knows what the heck is going on. And so everyone's like, well, we might as well hedge our bet on this whole system and, and get some of this, this crypto money. But, uh, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird thing. And that, that's the other thing that makes me really content with where I am is because I know if I go back on that path, you know, people have asked me, would you raise money again? And I'm like, I just know where that goes. I've done that before. And I know how much of a drug it is to get into that mode. And there's no escape from that mode. Like show me the escape. I don't, I haven't seen it yet. Bezos is, I mean, the one example I have seen of it actually is Bill Gates, who I mentioned in, in my post, like he figured it out. He got out of the system and now he does this amazing stuff. And I'm sure his wife played a huge role in that. And uh, I'm sure he's more fulfilled and happier than he's ever been. And his bank his bank account is just dropping <laughs> like nobody's business, right? He's just giving it all away. And I'm sure he's just the serotonin, dopamine firing off in his head is, a, is, is just awesome. I, and I think he just, he, I think he got it, you know? And then you have Warren Buffett who like, I genuinely don't know what the hell that guy is doing. I have massive amount of respect for him. I know it's almost blasphemy to say anything negative about him. But like, what, what's the point? I don't, I genuinely would love to be like, dude, what's like, maybe he's just so fulfilled by that. And that's great. I think I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but it just, it just, it's just kind of crazy to me. Yeah. He's like late eighties. His partner, Charlie Munger is like 95, still going to their shareholder meetings, <laughs> still running their business the same way. It's pretty. Still drinking Diet Coke yeah. and <laughs> eating playing, McDonald's. You know, oh my gosh. Crazy. It's, 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 uh, it's, I mean, you know, one, you know, one, the best system that I think the, there, there, uh, there's one example of this that also I think is figured out, which was George Washington, right? He got to the peak and then he's like, I'm good. Like, I'm just going to retire. I'm going to smoke weed on my cherry farm or whatever he does or did. And, uh, the next dude can deal with this. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> Unfortunately, the next dude has, you know, for, since now, hopefully next woman soon, but yeah, it's just crazy. It's just, uh, and I think that opting out is, is, I mean, think about how rare that is. Like, that's like the most significant thing he did was, you know, was, was not do anything anymore. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think people would, would, I think if there were more people doing it, it would be, it would be pretty, pretty awesome. You'd make space for more people to do their thing. Unemployment rates are at like a record low and yet any, everyone is unhappy and 
making no money somehow. So maybe the answer is like all the people that are making money, like just buy a nice house and, and chill out for a bit and make space for the other people that can make more money, you know? Well, the show happens to be listened to by a lot of people who are ambitious, who haven't, who haven't started yet, and they want to get started doing something. They're not quite ready to call it off because they haven't gotten started yet. I've surveyed the Indie Hackers audience quite a lot in recent months. They are mostly developers. They really struggle with coming up with ideas or once they do, how to get traction and how to grow. Uh, and most of them have no interest whatsoever in raising any sort of money. Like They're very dialed into, I want to start a business to improve my life and the lives of the people around me, perhaps my employees and customers. What's your advice for somebody just getting started on this path today? Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing is to build stuff, um, to start small and figure out what you want to build. And, and, and honestly, a lot of people aren't going to know what they want to build. So just like build something as small as it is, or maybe not even build something. Just ask the people that you love in your community, the communities that you care about, how you could make their life better. If you know how to code, I mean, that's a, that's a superpower. Uh, you could build stuff. You can automate stuff that people are doing manually. So just ask them, like, what are you doing manually? Like, are you spending 30 minutes a day, like dealing with Excel, an Excel spreadsheet to calculate blank? Like, are you, you know, going on Yelp, like trying to find a restaurant to eat and you kind of go through the same process every single time? Automate the boring stuff is, is a term I've heard and I like it. Figure out what you can start building. And I think once you start building stuff, it's, it's, it's similar to painting where like some days you're like, I don't know, or writing. Like, I have no idea what I want to paint or write. But the, the, you know, I'm like driving down the, down the highway, like looking at spot being like, okay, what do I want to paint? And I'm like, fine, I'll just paint that stupid barn, whatever. And then I'm driving home and every single thing looks like a painting, <laughs> like the same stuff I was looking at before. And so I think a lot of it is just like you, you prime your brain for that process, that creative process, which is what building products is. It's a creative process. And then all of a sudden you're going to have more and more and more ideas but if you just sit around and you're like, I'm just going to sit down and stare at this piece of paper and come up with ideas, I guarantee you that's the absolute worst way to do it. Go for a run, go for a walk, hang out with some friends and just live your life. And you're going to have those ideas eventually. And then you're going to build one of them. And then you're going to figure out your brain's going to click and your observation skills. When you get better at painting, what you're really doing is you're training your observation skills. You're not really training your hand. You're not really learning anything about how paints mix. The vast majority of the learning is happening and your ability to observe a, a disconnect between your painting and what you're seeing and fixing that. You just fix it over and over again until you have a really great painting, basically. And so it's kind of the same goes. I think you just train your brain. Your brain is sort of a muscle uh, in that way. You just have to train it and make it stronger and it'll get better at those things. So that's like the big thing, I think, is like build stuff, build a lot of it. I really like the weekend project thing because it keeps the stakes super low and and also is a really great constraint. I think when you're like, I need to build something. I mean, anything looks like, you know, like that thing. But if you, if you constrain yourself and you're like, I'm only going to build things that use the, um, zoom API because that's a new thing. I feel like it's underserved. Maybe there's something there. Uh, focus on that. Really think about that. Look through their API endpoints and just prime your brain, you know, for that, for that thing. And then as you live your life and, you'll be like, oh crap, wouldn't it be cool if I had like a little bot that I could invite to every single call that I'm on and it would just transcribe the notes or it would tell me how many times I said the F word or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. like something like that. And then, you know, you can figure out what you want to build, but unless you start, it's so difficult to, to really start moving. Actually, the, uh, the Mormon faith says, I think something like, you know, faith is like, is like walking 
in the dark. Like you can, you have to take one step at a time and over time you'll build your faith and, and the room will light up and things like that. I kind of like that metaphor because it's, it's true in products, right? It's like, you have no idea what, like you can't build anything. Like you, you look at, I mean, you look at the homepage of Gumroad, the homepage of Netflix, the homepage of Yahoo, the homepage of maybe Google's the same, but Amazon, et cetera, right? Like in, when they first launched, like it's totally different and you just have to start and then you'll, you'll learn and you'll iterate and you'll build and, 99.9% of the, a product is built post launch. And so get to the launch as soon as you can. Again, that's why I like the weekend thing. And, and yeah, just like think as small as you can. And also the other thing that I did a lot was like, I didn't have ideas in the early days. And so I just was like for hire, you know, I just built apps and designed and developed for other people. And eventually you will have your own ideas because they're going to be like, Hey, you should build this. And they're, and you're like, cool. Yeah. What about, but actually like, this is a really weird way to think about it have you thought about this? And they're like, oh yeah, that's better. Do that instead. You know, and you'll start basically getting paid, be, ba- be paid to, uh, to, to learn on the job. And then you can always, you know, branch out. And if, I guarantee you're going to start having your own ideas. I mean, experienced uh, founders and, and product folks that I've talked to, like they have too many ideas at this point. <laughs> they have, you know, they, they, they have more ideas than they can, than they can even write down um, because they've trained their brain so much that everything everything in their life is a problem. And some, I remember uh, I had dinner with Johnny I from Apple or he used to be from Apple. And one of the things he said, someone asked him was a group dinner and someone asked him about, yeah, just like, does he obsess over things? Right? Like, is it a problem basically that he's like, this is on, this is not designed. This is not designed. This needs more aluminum. And, uh, (laughs) and he was basically like, yeah, (laughs) like you train your brain to such a level to sort of like, point out any inconsistency, anything that could be improved and everything starts to look like a problem waiting to be solved. You know, the hand soap uh, dispenser, the soy sauce uh, container, paper plates, blenders, you know, everything. Um, you can't, you can't help it because you, you just like, you're, you've trained your brain and your brain is like, okay, cool. I, I, I have this skill now and uh, therefore I, it, it requires energy to maintain the skill and, 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 and clearly like, I, I learned this skill for a, a reason related to my survival. And so I need to like use it as much as possible. Otherwise it's going to go away. And, you know, I think that's kind of what happens. I don't know, maybe some, some evolutionary scientist is, is going to get upset at me, but uh, I think that's how I think about it, you know? And so it's a, if you want to get good at something, you just have to figure out a way to do it and you will get good at that thing. That is just how our bodies work. Love that advice. Make a lot of stuff, build a lot of stuff. Start small and just try to get the momentum going. And you can sort of trust that your brain will follow at what it's best at. It just adapts to whatever the needs are that you place on it. And it's like you're saying, the goal really is to basically become the sort of person who has ideas rather than just, you know, sitting down and staring at a blank sheet of paper and just hoping that you have ideas today. Um, yeah, just you got to train your brain. And if you do get into that habit, you know, if you, if you come up with, if you code every day from four to seven, like you're going to start, you know, it's going to be like three forty, and you're going to like have all of your brain's just going to get into it. It just, it just knows it's just, it's, it's much smarter than you are. Um, and much more powerful if you, if you train it, I think in the right way. Well, that seems like a great place to end the episode. It's been two hours. Sahil, thanks for coming on, giving us a ton of your time, sharing the story of Gumroad and all the things that you learned about how to build a company that makes you happier and more fulfilled as a founder. 
Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about you and also about what's up with Gumroad nowadays as well? Definitely check out Gumroad, gumroad.com. And then the best place to see what we're up to all the time is to follow us on Twitter at, at Gumroad and then to follow me on Twitter if you want, which is at SHL, which is where I tweet basically everything that I think of at some point um, and all the weird ideas I'm up to. And and yeah, that's, that's ready to go. Thanks again, Sahil, for coming on the show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me, Corland. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you.